This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 197. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Laura Ramiyasha, and the wind is filling me up with energy enough to do a rider kick to the sky, because I am so excited. We are discussing the classic common Rider manga written by Shitaro Ishinomori, released in a really heavy, exhaustive brick of a book, <laughs> 800 plus pages. And a fantastic release and localization by Seven Seas. And we have some great guests to talk about this iconic series with us today. The letterer for Seven Seas' release of Kamen Rider and letterer extraordinaire Phil Christie. And our good friend, one of our favorite YouTubers and a big expert and lover of Ulting Chitari Shinomori, John, or you may know him on YouTube as Mercury Falcon. We had a great time talking with Phil and John about Kamen Rider, the classic manga, how it stacks up as a companion piece to the TV series and a work in its own right that Dean's explored in the work. How really awesome the art in the series is. Just some Ooh, insane yeah. comics action sequencing that Ishinomori comes up with. And just have a ton of fun revisiting this 50-year-old classic manga that sprawled one of the most iconic and important influential Hokusatsu franchises, media franchises, really, of all time. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm really excited for everyone to listen to this episode because, uh, man... I talk about it in the episode, but I really was not expecting to love this comic as much as I did. I, I definitely go over how much I, I love all the motorcycle action, so uh, stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, this was a really fun episode. I loved reading and talking about Common Rider with uh, with John and Phil. It was a fun conversation, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully, this won't be the last time we talk about Shotaro Ishinomori if our release schedule goes the way it does. But we'll we'll t- we'll, t- we'll kind of talk about that at the end of the show. For right now, we don't have anything else to talk about at the top of the show. Um, so I think. We should just get right into our discussion on Common Rider. What do you say, Lum? Yeah, let's hop on our motorcycles and let's hit up that classic guitar riff as we soar and roar all the way into our Common Rider discussion. Semaru. <laughs> Kamen Rider, Kamen Rider, Rider, Rider. Oh, the wind fills us with energy as it goes through our bodies and energizes us to discuss the classic manga by Shotaro Ishinomori, the king of manga himself, and his manga that inspired the long-running Kamen Rider franchise. And with us to discuss this classic and iconic series today, we have our returning guest, John, from the Mercury Falcon YouTube channel. Hello. 
And we have the letterer of the recent classic collection released from Seven Seas, Phil Christie. Hello. Hello. Excited to have both of you guys on to talk about this classic series with us today. John, I know you're a huge fan of Ishinomori's works and have been doing the Cyborg 009 2001 uh, arc by arc review project that I've really been enjoying. And you were a big fan of the Douwei Fushi comedy series and did a great video on that. So very excited to have your perspective on the manga and Counterwriter. And Phil, your retouch work on the series. Like we've been a fan of your lettering on the show for a long time but especially the attention to detail you've done on the sound effects and the lettering in this release is just phenomenal so really excited to talk about it with you here today especially thank you but yeah this was a really exciting release that we've been waiting a long time for perfect thing to release for common writers 50th anniversary though it came out a little bit late there were delays in the release date uh, towards the end of the year but it finally came out it's a big hefty eight 160 page book nice hardcover release great page quality unfortunately i don't have my physical copy yet because of right stuff shipping delays but thankfully i got the digital copy and have been able to feel and flip through the book at my bookstore so yeah like it's it's a really great book and release to celebrate common writer but uh, before we dig into the manga proper i think we should all explore what our backgrounds our histories with common writer as a franchises and also with the man himself the king of Shotari Shinomori like what our experiences with his works have been mm-hmm. I guess uh, John is the pr- probably the biggest Ishinomori fan in the room uh, you can go ahead and start us off if you want so yeah I guess my interest with Ishinomori's work can go back to um, original Power Rangers airing but um, I'd really say I mean that's more of a Toei thing he didn't really you know he didn't He wasn't involved in Power Rangers itself, but it was an adaptation of Sentai, which he created. But in the early 2000s, around the same time, Cartoon Network and Adult Swim both started airing Cyborg 009 on Cartoon Network and Android Kikaider the Animation on Adult Swim. Mm -hmm. And I got really interested in both of these shows, but I actually leaned more towards uh, Android Kikaider. And I, I give that to me being a teenager and Kikaider being on Adult Swim. So to me, that made it cooler and more mature. But it still felt a lot like Power Rangers, like even not knowing that they're by the same guy. I really, it really felt that way. Like they felt very similar to me. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, totally. I think that there are a lot of similar motifs across the series. Yeah. And then around, probably around 2010 or 2011, um, I rediscovered Cyborg 009. And I was actually shocked that they'd never released it entirely on DVD. It had a very odd release because it was an anime put out by Sony of all people. But I wound up finding, you know, the anime's online. I wound up watching it online, and uh, that got me interested in the manga. And reading the manga is actually what really got me into the series, and I wound up wanting to explore more Ishinomori stuff through that. And then in 2012, Comixology actually wound up putting out, like, four Ishinomori titles, one being the Cyborg 009 manga. Um, but then they also put uh, Inazuman, Skullman, uh, their translation of Kamen Rider, and the Skullman one-shot. And I had also just discovered the Skullman anime adaptation, which in itself has tons of references and homages to this Ishinomori stuff. And so through that, I just kept exploring and exploring, and I, I wound up reading pretty much any manga he made that I could get my hands on. And that was that was really what did it for me. Excellent. I can't imagine there was a whole ton of Ishinomori manga to read. I, I don't think we have a whole lot of his stuff over here yet, unfortunately. Right. I mean, besides the series that are on Comixology. There's a decent amount that have been translated by fans, though. You'd actually be surprised. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the man earned the Guinness World Record for having the most manga published by a single creator. Most comics published by a single creator. Really? Over wow. 770 titles, 500 volumes of manga, <laughs> surpassing the output of his mentor, Osama Tezuka himself. Mm, the king wow. of manga <laughs> surpassed the output of the god of manga. So he had quite an incredible legacy. Wow, I didn't even know that, actually. That's pretty cool. Yeah, essentially what happened was um, he, by the 70s, he was so famous that he actually had like full studios of people where he would design the characters and and everything. But then he'd have like basically a comics mill where he'd just be pump his him and his assistants of like, I think he had, I forget if it was 200 or 500, but they'd just be pumping out manga. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Basically, we will later see the same thing happen with Takao Saito and Golgo 13. And then it's pretty common now in comics. What Everyone talks about the Garfield mill and whatnot. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, Osamu Akimoto also comes to mind. I think he has his own studio, too. Um, but I guess just as far as Common Rider goes, what, what was kind of your, uh, I guess, experience with that in particular? Uh, weird, weirdly enough, I I never got into. I had friends that were into the um, Heisei era stuff. They were watching at the time. They were watching O's, which was the newest one at the time, and they'd also told me to watch Kiva. But I'd never really gotten into the Heisei era stuff, and even today, I don't really care about Heisei or the new Reiwa era stuff. But after getting into the Skull Man and finding out that it was, you know, heavily, insp- it was what led to the creation of Common Rider was the Skull Man. I was like, okay, well, I want to learn more about Common Rider because I'm more interested in Skull Man. And that was when I got into Common Rider, and I didn't really know where to start. I watched some episodes of the TV show. Uh, the TV show is uh, 98 episodes, so if you're going to watch it, you know, you could probably find, like, a curated list of episodes to watch. Because uh, yeah. it's it's not like one of those shows where I feel like you got to watch every episode. Um, it, it, there's a lot of just Monsters of the Week, and there's a lot of just stuff where it's just the kids are hanging out this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really got into the manga, actually, and I was uh, kind of disappointed because there was a... Skullman, basically, I think it was the guy who did the G Gundam character designs. Yeah, Kazuhiko Shimamoto. Yes, yeah, Shimamoto. He he did a Skullman manga at the behest of Ishinomori in the 90s. And I was only able to get the first three volumes of that because it's it's rare and out of print. But I was actually shocked when I checked out the Kamen Rider manga on Comixology and he really just borrowed probably Ishinomori probably asked him to, but he wound up just recycling the Common Rider plot, the plot that happens mostly at the end of the manga with the electronics company. He wound up recycling a lot of that into his Skullman adaptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that Skullman manga, I actually owned the entire run of that, the Tokipop release. Oh, wow. And But yeah, no, it really uh, takes inspiration from a lot of Ishinomori's different works and works it into the series. So it is like a big tribute to like his career and his iconic characters. So it's, it's a really great read. Even Joe, uh, Cyborg 009, shows up and he has a fight, and that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, uh, Phil, we can move on to you if you want to talk about your histories a little bit. Um, my history? I guess the same thing. I, for me, it was Power Rangers. It was the kind of thing that got me into it, I suppose. Like, I didn't even really know what it was until I came to actually live in Japan. I didn't really know what Kamen Rider was. I'd seen it, but like Japan has a lot of those kind of TV shows. So I didn't really understand how to differentiate between them. But yeah, I've always been a fan of kind of old school manga. So I was never really into the... I've seen... If you're talking about the TV show, then I've seen... I can't even remember the name. Kamen Rider 
W or something like that. Oh, Common Rider Double. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Double. Okay, yeah. I remember seeing that one when I, I think I was on holiday in Japan, which kind of, well, I don't know. I wasn't really a big fan of it, to be honest. And then there was the Common Rider Drive. Did you know that one? I think I do, yeah. Where he's got a car? Yeah, not yeah. A bike. <laughs> <laughs> that was crazy. Cars. Breaks the cars. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, as far as being a fan, I can't say that I'm actually a huge fan of Common Rider. I always preferred. I like Cyborg 009, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, way before that. I guess, uh, are, are you into a lot of Ishinomori's work besides those? Or is that kind of about it? Or I like Kamen Rider. I've never really been into like anime, so I've always liked the manga. So I like Kamen Rider, Cyborg 009. And then there's another one that he did. I can't think. It's not Go Ranger, but it's something like that. But I find that they've all got pretty similar premises, right? Mm-hmm. As far as the transforming hero stuff, essentially. Yeah, I mean, even the very premise of Common Rider takes a lot from the premise of Cyborg Design, the idea of, you know, evil organization kidnaps people, turns them into cyborgs to fight as they're like mindless soldiers. So. Well, they've even got the same. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Go Ranger. Um, <laughs> Black Cross Army and then the Black Ghost. That's Cyborg 009, right? Yeah. That is kind of wild how Ishinomori basically created, like, two of the most well-known tokusatsu franchises in history, huh? Yeah, no. I mean, he inspired, like, an entire medium. I mean, yeah, it's like a, the transforming hero is just, like, the subgenre. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you think that he's still going. I mean, not him, but, you know, like, you think this stuff is still... But the legacy left behind, yeah, yeah his works are still going. Like, the franchises are just so immortal and oh, yeah. continue to get new iterations again and again. And, like, a lot of his grits keep getting readapted again and again. Like, there isn't a huge gap between Cyborg 009 projects these days, even. We've gotten a lot in recent years. So, yeah, like... It is incredible. <laughs> well, I'm surprised they never did a common right. They don't have an anime, right? Uh, Double, I think, is getting an anime soon. Mm. Yeah, there is a upcoming common writer anime that's based on a manga. So that's pretty exciting. The series is called Futopi that's coming this July. Okay, yeah, I'd heard that they were going to release something, but I didn't know when. Yeah, it's a sequel to Double. Okay, okay. Okay. No, I'm, I'm interested in checking that. I should really check out Double at some point. I mean, I, I guess I can get into my histories really quickly because I'm definitely, out of the two of them, I'm definitely a lot more familiar with Kamen Rider than I am like Ishinomori's line of work. I want to say this, this was the first Ishinomori work I've ever actually read. You know, I think I brought it up on the podcast before, but like I've always been aware, at least for the past couple years, that like you could just read Common Rider and, you know, some of his other stuff on Comixology, and I just never got around to it. But like, you know, even before this was picked up by Seven Seas, like, you know, as soon as I knew that Common Rider was on Comixology, I was like, okay, that might be a cool idea for an episode down the line, and I'm glad we're finally getting to it. And so, yeah, I, I really wasn't familiar with Ishinomori's work entirely, but. Like I said, I'm definitely familiar with Common Rider. I went on a very big Common Rider kick when I was in high school. An ex friend of mine at this point uh, actually introduced me to Common Rider through Common Rider Deno, which I believe is a Heisei Rider. Yes. I'm also way more familiar with Heisei Riders than I am Showa Riders, as much as I would like to check out the Showa Riders. But um, I'm trying to think. I, I've seen Deno, Kiva, Kuga, I've seen Agito, Ryuki, Hibiki. I think Hibiki. I might be wrong about this. I think he, I think that was like specifically a tribute to Ishinomori. Like I remember his name like 
being attached to that somehow, but I can't really remember specifically how. Because I, I think he, I think he died like quite a while ago, didn't he? Uh, about ninety eight, ninety nine. Okay, okay, then yeah, it, it was, it was probably like tributed to him or whatever. Because like, I remember seeing his name attached to it. I just couldn't remember in, like in what context. Well, all, unlike Super Sentai, the Kamen Rider series still cr- tributes uh, created by Shotaro Ishinomori. Ah, uh, okay. Sentai doesn't do that. Toei claims they created. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, wow. <laughs> Which is interesting because Kamen Rider also falls under Toei. They wrote Toei Produced, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> why they do they claim one thing? Oh no, we created this original idea. Well, their their logic is that Ishinomori created Sentai, but they created Super Sentai. And the difference is that Ishinomori's Go Ranger and Jacka were the first two series, and Jacka flopped, so they waited a couple of years. But then three years later, they rebooted it with Battle Fever J. And that was totally a Toei thing. And they marketed that as Super Sentai. And for there, for like 15 years or so, they didn't include Go Ranger and Jacka as Sentai series. And then around O Ranger, which was Power Ranger Zio, when that came out, they said, okay, yeah, we're going to incorporate Go Ranger and Jacka. We'll, we'll include those two. We're not going to credit Ishinomori, but we'll, we'll throw in their theme songs on our records and stuff. Mm, wow. Man, okay. the extent that companies will go to deny the original creator's credit. Man, I never saw that coming. <laughs> Just to say that <laughs> amalgamation, like the company, you know, we own this property. We created this idea. The original artist, we don't want to pay and respect their, their, to them. Their logic is that Super Sentais have a giant mech and Go Ranger and Jacka don't have a giant mech. So that's why they weren't Super Sentai. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awful. But yeah, awful companies aside. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's really much to my history outside of that. I mean, b- basically, I got really into Kamen Rider for a while. But then I, I think I got to a point where like, I watched enough to the point where I was like, I think I kind of burned myself out a bit. And then eventually, I tried to get back into tokusatsu in general by kind of watching a bit of Sentai here and there, though I, uh, I, I have even less like, uh, we'll probably talk about when we talk about Go Ranger eventually. Um, but I, I have even less experience with like Super Sentai than I do with Common Rider. I've seen a lot more Common Rider, but at this point, there's also so many Rider series I haven't seen that like people always recommend to me that like I know I should get to. Like I really want to check out Double. Um, I tried starting O's, and then I I got like really far into it, but I never finished it. And then there was um what was the other one? Oh, Gaim. I've heard very good things about Gaim. I'm pretty sure Gen Rabuchi was involved with that one in particular. So. And I've heard pretty wild things about that one, so I really want to try that one eventually. But um, Comet Rider is a thing that, like, I've always really enjoyed. It's just really up until we've gotten to this discussion, I just haven't really had a chance. I don't get a chance to talk about too much tokusatsu anywhere on any of my podcasts. So this and our eventual Go Ranger discussion will be a nice outlet for that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, as far as, like, reading this particular manga goes, I mean... Man, this this really makes me want to like get back in the Common Rider eventually because I know um, for those who don't know uh, the original Common Rider TV show that is connected to this manga is just available streaming legally at this point. You you could just watch all of that, and I I watched a little bit of that TV series, and I really liked what I watched. Like I I do want to get to that eventually. But also, it's like, let's not. I mean, look, I know I probably don't have to watch all of it, but it's also like, uh, my brain needs me to watch everything of a thing. I just can't help it. I'm a completionist. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, 
uh, we'll get into it in a little bit, but this 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 manga was really awesome, and I definitely want to read more Ishinomori works after reading this for sure, and I, I can't wait to get into the Go Rangers soon. But that's basically where I'm at, um, Lum, if you want to get into your history. Yeah, well, mine with Kamen Rider is pretty short because I really don't have much history with Kamen Rider as a property because I never really checked it out before the series and I didn't read the manga when it was available on Comicsology before. So I suppose like my familiar with Kamen Rider really is through kind of the other Ishinomori stuff I read. Like mentioned before, I read Kazuhiko Shimamoto's Skullman manga and I, you know, I because I was a fan of Shimamoto, he was a Blazing Transfer student and I managed to find the manga and collect it all uh, at a good price like just at a local bookstore so that was a lucky break because that does go for uh, a sum these days on the second market but yeah no it's a really great series but obviously you know Shimamoto's sensibility is very inspired by Ishinomori but not quite the same but it did make me interested in checking out more Ishinomori's manga so I did read 009 I read Skullman and I enjoyed them but I didn't end up also reading Comrade Inazuman just because I didn't end up getting around to it but I think of all his properties 009 was the one and it's always been the one that I've been most like fascinated by interested in wanting to like watch and read like other stuff in it so I've dabbled in the different series and films over the years besides the manga and so that's the one I have the most affection for but I will say in comparing like uh, the W09 manga to Kamen Rider like it's amazing just kind of the seven years uh, difference like in Ishinomori's art like it's it's incredibly strong still in 009 but like his storytelling is like much more moodened out and much more focused on like action beats and long stretches of pages that just are devoted to action yep. and just outlining sequences in really cinematic ways and so reading the manga for this spot I super energized me to get back into reading more of Shinomori's works especially from this era onwards and like yeah I'm, I'm really excited to discuss the series today and continue discussing his works uh, hopefully in the future but yeah I mean that's the shortcut of it you know I have always wanted to dig into more of his stuff I was a fan and have dabbled in series 09 in particular but now I'm like yeah I really want to get into more of his manga and as far as the Kamarada franchise in particular like I didn't know much about the shows before going in other than like what you know second hand I've heard because you know I thought a lot of people were interested in it you know our friend Allison watches a lot of Toku stuff including Kamarada she's definitely fallen down that rabbit hole pretty deep yeah yeah so I've heard a lot about it from there but I in preparation for this podcast I did watch a lot of the original series from 71 especially just comparing episodes that have counterparts to the manga and not exactly adapted from it because these were series the tv show and the manga they were created in tandem yeah uh and like ishinomori's ideas were definitely incorporated in the show but the execution is very different the tone is pretty different and of course you know they go in completely different directions but it was interesting watching the show uh, definitely i think i would lean more towards manga and anime adaptations of it works but i'm definitely curious to continue watching more episodes i definitely want to watch the episode where Shinomori himself cameo that Allison mentioned episode 84 yeah, so yeah. probably will do that but yeah like it was an enjoyable experience and like I definitely I'm into counter and I want to see more things in this so I'm very much excited for that Fudo P anime that's coming out and hopefully I will see uh, even more manga related to the series licensed and come out over here so I'd be into that but yeah no let's just uh, get into maybe Common Rider proper and just you know this series 
And do we want to give like a brief background on the creation of the series? Like I have some notes, but John, I know that you'd probably be able to eloquently sum up like where the idea for Common Rider came from, its genesis and origins, and then like how it got put to the page and put to the silver screen. Yeah, um, I have producer Toru Hirayama. He was a producer at Toei. And I had uh, I have his book um, where he wrote about all his shows, which I used to make my video on the Toei Fushigi comedy series. But I figured, you know, he wrote about Kamen Rider, so I went ahead and had those translated just for this. Uh, yeah, so I can I can talk a bit about how Kamen Rider came to be. For sure, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested because I have no idea myself. Yeah, okay. So uh, it actually started – it wasn't like an Ishinomori idea per se where he pitched it. It was it actually starts where Toru Hirayama specifically working for Toei. Toei, uh, this TV network reached out to Toei saying that they have this time slot. I believe it was. Uh, uh, let me pull it up. I have it right here. Manichi Broadcasting System had the seven thirty to eight Saturday time slot, and they were losing out to TBS's competing show, uh, so they needed something to compete with that. Yeah, exactly. And so they wanted to do uh, like a hero show. But the way trends were going, hero shows weren't doing very popular. Subaraya had put Ultraman on hiatus at that point. People were more interested in character dramas and particularly sports anime. Those were becoming very popular. And so superheroes weren't really a thing that was doing well on TV. But they figured that, well, if no one's doing it, then maybe if we do it, people will watch it. So Toru Hirayama was tasked with basically coming up with a superhero that they could put in that time slot that would be popular with kids. Um, he had met Ishinomori at a Kodansha meeting. And so he decided to go and see Ishinomori. Uh, by this point, Ishinomori was already like a big celebrity. So uh, Hirayama was a was actually like, despite being a producer with Toei, Ishinomori was basically, would be his uh, senpai, like his hi a higher up in status, basically. So he went and he had about, I think he only had like a 30 minute window to speak with him. And he basically told him, here are my ideas, this is what we want to do. And Ishinomori, you know, took his ideas and he listened to like his pitch and he designed a superhero called Crossfire. And Crossfire was a motorcycle riding superhero who he was a motorcycle riding superhero who was also a professional wrestler. And funny enough, a lot of that professional wrestling stuff winds up making it into the final version of Kamen Rider where um, Shocker's Mexican branch are all luchador themed <laughs> I, I was i was gonna say I, I could even see that in like maybe some of like common writers like signature moves maybe oh absolutely yeah and it's funny because uh they do talk about how coming up with his moves like the reason why his main move is the rider kick they had a very low budget in fact um <laughs> they were initially told whatever the cost is give us a show that gets ratings and so they said <laughs> okay we'll do that and then when they got the budget it was less than a regular show would be Woof. Um, and so Hirayama called them up and said, why are you shorting us on the budget? You said whatever it costs. And they basically got antagonistic with him and said, oh, why do you why do you want so much extra money? You're just going to skim off the top and, and pocket it for yourself. And so it became like a <laughs> man. Yeah. And so they Hirayama actually had to argue with the guy. And then Hirayama actually wrote in his book. It's funny that after that interaction, I became known as like a as like a dog, like a like an angry dog who will bark back at you. <laughs> When that's not his personality at Hall, he was just exceptionally offended by that comment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, so they they went ahead and Ishinomori designed this hero called Crossfire. He wears like a helmet, but he has like a, when he lowers the visor, it has like a red cross on it. And that basically becomes his face mask. They brought that design to Toei. Everyone at Toei loved it. They thought it was great. They thought it was cool. It was memorable. Hiriyama goes home. He's so excited. Uh, that night he gets a call 
And Ishinomori calls him up. And probably what happened was this is Ishinomori's first time making a, a tokusatsu hero. So he probably had a bunch of ideas in his head and was changing ideas because that's one of the issues they run into is Ishinomori changing his ideas a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Ishinomori calls up Hiriyama and says, I don't want to do Crossfire. I want to do something else. I want to do something scary. And Hiriyama is kind of reluctant, but he does say, okay, let me see what you got. And so Ishinomori winds up pitching the Skull Man to him. And Ishinomori makes this 100-page pitch manga, basically, that goes over who this. it basically shows you who the Skull Man is, how he acts, uh, what his powers are. And the problem is, is that the Skull Man is very violent. Very early on, he's willing to kill people. He like kills a guard. Yeah. He kills a guard that when he's just like investigating a place, he's not afraid to like kill civilians who aren't like criminals. He has like ties to the Yakuza and there's like police corruption. Um, and, and so it's not appropriate for a kid show is the main problem they have. Too much of an anti-hero and <laughs> too quick to kill. Not a defender of justice and nature and children like Common Rider. Not very marketable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the Skull Man it winds up becoming a popular one. The the one shot becomes very popular, but they can't make it into a show, and so they wind up going through a bunch of ideas. And eventually, Ishinomori designs a bunch of different masks for a hero, shows them to his son, um, and his son picks out the Grasshopper one, and so he decides to design a hero with a grasshopper motif. And so Toei was really, they still really liked Crossfire, but they were, Hiriyama was very big on, even if I'm not the biggest fan of this, I'll respect Ishinomori's wishes. And uh, Hiriyama actually talks about in this piece I had translated, that he was very unsure about the project going into it. And he took the helmet when they'd finally got the prop helmet. And he went up to a little girl on the street and he showed her the helmet and he asked her, what do you think of this? And she started crying and he was <laughs> uh, very worried. Oh, man. The project was going to be called uh, Common Rider Hopper King. At the very last minute, they had to call up the magazine printing the manga and they called them up. This last, last minute name change, it's just going to be Common Rider. So they were changing things way late into development. They didn't have a budget for special effects, so he couldn't like shoot lasers like Ultraman. That's why his special attack is just a kick, because it was very easy to film on a, on a low budget. Regardless, one thing that Hiriyama points out is that because his main attack was just a kick, he thinks that that actually made it more popular with kids because it was easier for kids who were playing at school to recreate that. And it was easier for them to basically role play as Kamen Rider with their friends because anyone can do a kick. And later down the line, this actually ran into an issue where they had to run basically like PSAs telling kids, don't jump off walls <laughs> pretending to be Common Rider. <laughs> oh, wow. And yeah, that's that's how Common Rider came to be. And of course, I'm sure everyone knows that 10 episodes into filming, Hiroshi Fujioka famously broke his leg performing a stunt. Oh, man. Um, and disappears from the show. And we were introduced to Hayato Ichimonji, Common Rider 2, mm. whose personality is very different where... Hiroshi Fujioka's portrayal of Takeshi Hango was very noble, very old-fashioned hero. Hayato is actually a lot like, uh, I always compare him to like the Peter Parker Spider-Man. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. More quippy, more friendly. And that's definitely reflected in the manga too, although he still has some of that existential angst about being a machine. But no, he's much more of an outgoing guy, not afraid to have relationships with other people. In contrast to Hanga, who is like more reserved and more serious. Okay, I was really wondering about that when I got to that point in the series. 
Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that Ishinomori had to change the direction of the manga to reflect what was going on in the show in terms of introducing Ichi uh, Moji. Though the way he does it is much different than in the show. In the show, it's much better because there's an actual transition (laughs) to (laughs) replacing (laughs) Hayato Ishimoji. Because in the show, like, you know, the first three episodes, they use like stock footage, unused footage of Fujio to just kind of piece together some episodes while they're preparing to just find a new actor. And then, you know, they write Hongo out of the show by saying, oh, he's going off to fight Shocker Ages of Japan. But here is Ichimoji. He is someone who also got kidnapped by Shocker and turned into a cyborg that Hongo rescued. And he has been tasked by Hongo to protect Japan while he's away. And so now he's the new common writer. And it's explained just as upfront as that. He literally shows up and goes, Oh, by the way, I'm also a common rider. I was captured by Shocker, uh, but Takeshi Ango saved me. I'm a cyborg too. He's going to be in Europe for a while. There's no flashback. It's just him expositing that. And yeah, like then basically later on in the series, Hongo comes back. Fujioka recovers and he comes back and the two con writers appear in the show together. Hongo takes over as the main writer around episode 50-ish and therefore, but of course, you know, Ijimonji still sticks around and comes back for a collab team up apps but yeah I mean it's very different than in the manga where in the manga there's like an actual transition passing the torch from Hayato Digimonji and of course you know in the show uh, like (laughs) Hongo is not you know his body isn't like destroyed and he's a brain and a computer (laughs) for an arc and a half like in the show no he's just away in Europe and then he comes back and he's like still you know (laughs) he still has his own body oh wow so it's very wild. <laughs> like, Ishimori had a very different take. And, of course, the remaining arcs of the manga are also, like, pretty much exclusive to the manga. Uh, not reflected in the show. No, but they were they were adapted for, uh, I think, the, they're in the Skullman manga and even the 2007 Skullman anime use, yeah. take, take heavy plot elements from that. But not in the original Kamen Rider TV show. They didn't use them. No, no, not at all. Though they did use the whole idea of, like, evil writers later on in the original Kamen Rider show. Though in the show, is just, like, six writers. And, of course, at that point, you know, Hayato, uh, I mean, yeah, Hayato and Hongo were, like, working together at this point. So it's, like, the two good writers with six evil Yeah, I, I was kind of, th- when I got to that point, I was thinking, like, man, there is no way in the TV show they did 13 whole writers. They don't have the budget for that. No, <laughs> no, cut it in half. <laughs> it's, like, eight, right? Yeah, I mean, eight altogether, including the two good writers. Because I was going to say, I know the Shocker, they're called the Shocker writers. And I know that um, in the TV show, they all have like different colored scarves. Because I actually have the figure arts of Shocker Rider. And uh, he comes with like the alternate scarf. So you can put like the red or the blue or the pink scarf on him. And he has has the little briefcase that has the identity of Shocker's leader. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, is there anything else we want to talk about the creation of Kamen Rider? Or do we want to go ahead and like I guess talk a little bit about what the actual plot of Common Rider is before we move on? Yeah. I think we can outline the premise, which is fairly uh, simple to explain, I think. I mean, Take- it starts with Takeshi Hongo, who is like a young biology student, you know, he's a big prodigy at his university and at his biology club, and he's a big racing prodigy. He loves racing on his motorcycles, and he's kind of the heir to like this big fortune of his, you know, family, the Hongo family, that he's going to get at some point. Doesn't quite have it at the start, but he does eventually after what happens, which is that he is targeted and 
and he is kidnapped by the evil organization Shocker who has like world conquering ambitions and is like creating cyborg soldiers to help them in their quest to like take over the world and like they want to transform humanity as a whole through technology that all just follows the will of Shocker but Hongo is helped by his mentor at his university Midori Kawa who is also kidnapped by Shocker to help do these experiments and procedures to transform people into cyborgs and so they escape together and then in the process of escaping like he <laughs> ends up like falling off a cliff and then just resurging as common Rider it's not a big explanation of like how he got the, the costume. Yeah, he just has it ready and everything. <laughs> he arrives he kind of rises up and saves Dorikala and they go off from there. And then of course the rest of the manga is like him fighting against the forces of Shocker and their mutant cyborgs that they send after him, which are all like animal teams and teamed after like at least initially on like animals that are considered like poisonous or deadly or misunderstood and dangerous to humans, you know, like spiders and bats and cobras and whatnot. And of course, you know, about halfway through the series, they have this big incident where Hongo is assaulted by 12 cyborgs similar to him who are intimidating Kamen Rider. And then his body is destroyed. And like one of the evil riders who in defeating ended up breaking free from his mind control takes up his mantle. And that's Ichimonji. Ichimonji is the main protagonist for the remainder of the series. And that's essentially the overall premise and plot of Common Rider. And there's more to dig into there in terms of the specific like kind of themes Ishinomori exploring specific beats the plot. But I guess uh, just in general, let's maybe reflect on like how what how did we feel like reading this series, like going into it, like the progression of the plot, the way characters were introduced and developed, like how did we feel as we were reading going on? Did it like meet expectations? Did it surprise us in any way, just from our preconceptions of the story, how it played out? I, I want to start off real quick and just say there were points reading this where I really thought about saying, man, this is like one of the best comics I've ever read. Uh, no hyperbole. Like, man, I, I didn't really like like obviously I'm familiar with Common Rider, but I'm I'm not super familiar with like a lot of the Showa stuff, let alone like the original Common Rider, you know? So like I didn't really know what to expect. Also, like I mentioned before, this is my first time reading any of Ishinomori's works in general, so I really had no idea what to expect, really. But, like, I think this might be one of the best action comics I've ever read. Like, if you want a comic full of explosions and motorcycles, this is the comic for you and you need to read it. No, most certainly <laughs> I would agree that Ishinomori's action sequences are just mesmerizing and incredible. Particularly when we get into the Man Bat chapter, which, yes. you know, copyright reasons, like they changed the name of Spider-Man and Batman to <laughs> Man Spider and Batman and Man Bat, which is, which is incongruous with like the other naming conventions for like Cobra Man and Jack Ram, but you know. And that's interesting because I remember that in the uh, original, or rather in the previous translation that's on Comixology, they did retain like Spider-Man and Batman. Ah, uh, okay. I am pretty sure it's like an how did ADV get fly me to the moon kind of thing where they just, well, they didn't they didn't ask, they just did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, like that Batman chap- that chapter, like where he takes Hongo up into the sky and he drops him down. And we just have these panels of like him falling into the city. And then we transition to him just like turning in midair, somersaulting and landing. That is just an incredible sequence of pages and panels. The, just the scope of that, just the storytelling of that, just all done through the art is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's sequences like that. Several sequences are just spent showing common rider just on his motorcycle at always an incredibly dynamic angles and with such detail loving detail on the motorcycles and just like sequences of just him riding and performing tricks just breaking down the action in minute detail like just slowing down time to see the movements play out within the space of a single panel it is just incredibly storytelling i need this to be on record and i i made sure to count but during the man bat story in particular there's like 12 whole pages in a row of just him riding his motorcycle and it's like it's it's genuinely some some of like the most entertaining comics i've ever read i was so like mesmerized this is this is a huge book if we haven't said it already, it's literally like over 800 pages. And some of these stories are longer than others. Like I had no trouble just reading uh, whole stories like in one sitting. Like it's also like a very easy to read comic because there's a lot of action going on all the time, you know. But it was just so like engaging to read. Like you, you were talking about the the stuff with Common Rider like falling after Man Bat drops him. I, I'm look, looking at those pages right now. There are some pages in here that really reminds me of like how Toriyama draws his action a little bit. Yeah, and Toriyama, of course, is a big Toku fan. So no, undoubtedly, he was probably very inspired by Ishinomori's work. Yeah, there are like specific sequences where Kamen Rider is like falling faster and faster, like certain techniques that I feel like I recognize from like Dragon Ball in particular. Very similar. Yes, but something very un-Dragon Ball is just the level of detail Ishinomori puts into his backgrounds. Oh, yeah. Like, just the cities that are drawn in such immaculate detail. Like, again, in that Man Bat chapter. And then other landscapes. Just just incredible. Like, he was able to publish this Boombly Weekly basis because it was running a weekly Shonen magazine. So it's just incredible amounts of detail in addition to just these incredibly cinematic sequences. So, absolutely, from, like, an action comic standpoint, these are some of the best, like, sequences that I've read in any comic. Oh, my but, God, yeah. I mean, I wanted to turn impressions of the art and storytelling over to you guys John and Phil like from your perspective like what do you find like most appealing about Ishinomori's art and his comic storytelling uh, I'll go first um, well in this manga specifically you mentioned the man bat fight something about whenever Spider-Man uses his threads it always looks really cool I don't know how to describe it but like it always looks really impact. It doesn't just look like I don't know how to describe it, but like his the threads that he spits out always look really cool, yeah, and really detailed, yeah. And then all of the and this is like something that Gonagai would do a lot, and I think Gonagai is more known for it, but it's all over this manga where he has the backgrounds that are just all black, and then it's like the stark, like the figure is drawn in white, and there's a ton of stuff like that that I think is really cool. As for his storytelling, one of the things that drew me to Ishinomori was it very much feels like the bad guys always in his work are like, take no prisoners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even if the heroes are super strong or invincible, like in the case of Kamen Rider or a later hero he made, which is one of my favorites, I always touted as the best show uh, tokusatsu is Kaketsu Zubat. He's even if the hero is invincible, it's still engaging because the people around that hero are going to die. Like, in Kaiketsu Zubat, there's plenty of times where he befriends a kid, and the kids get killed. 
Woof. And Kamen Rider has stuff like that too, even with uh, Ruriko's friend who gets bitten by Batman and stuff like that, where it's just like innocent bystanders, just uh, victims. And uh, even later on in the story where they have, uh, I think his name was Koji, the little boy. There's just a little boy with cancer and his his sister is being manipulated by Shocker. Stuff like that, where he's he's not afraid to do stuff like that, which you would not expect. Go Ranger has a, a sequence, and in the Toku, they actually made this the opening sequence of the bad guys gunning down every member of Eagle. And it's just like, it's so impactful. It doesn't happen in the manga until like halfway through, but they made it the op- the first episode, first scene of the Tokusatsu, where it's just the bad guys are just gunning down everyone in, in Eagle. And stuff like that is what really drove me to his comics. Yeah, I mean, it is an incredibly dark and transgressive work in terms of the amount of violence and casualties that are in the series. And also a lot of the the messaging, the political messaging of the series, too, was incredibly bold for its time. And it's so interesting to also compare this to Devilman. Which yeah, I was going like to say, very yeah. Similar series running in this ran in the same magazine, but ran later than this, like Common Rider predates Devilman by a year at the least, the original manga. So it's so interesting to compare those sensibilities and compare to these two works because absolutely especially with the monster designs in the series i was getting so much nagai wives having you know read his works before and that absolutely makes sense because go nagai was ishinomori's assistant ah okay there it is that was where he got his start actually and um that was that was like his first break in the manga industry was working as ishinomori's assistant um and common rider did play a big part in devil man if you actually watch the devil man anime the t- the episodic show from toei which came out before Gonagai's manga. There's a lot more Kamen Rider in that show where Devilman is much more of a, you know, it's still dark, but it's more of, it's very clearly a kid superhero show. For sure. Yeah. yeah. He dresses like a pro wrestler. He's got the trunks on <laughs> with the D on them. Uh, he's got a, He's got the scarf. He's got a scarf. I, I think in the opening he's wearing a scarf, but I know he, he ride, rides a motorcycle. Oh, I gotta mm-hmm. watch this. <laughs> oh man, no, I'm, I'm glad you cleared that up for me because there, there were definitely times reading this where I'm like, I, I really thought for a second, like, man, yeah, Devilman had to have taken some kind of influence or inspiration from this because, man, there were a lot of moments that really did remind me of Devilman, but I'm, I'm glad you cleared that up because that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and uh, even with all the comparisons to Devilman, one thing I'll always say, and I've, I've said this in videos of mine, is that one of the big differences and also one of the things that make Ishinomori's works interesting is even if they do get very dark, unlike Devilman, I would say that Ishinomori's stuff is always optimistic yeah Mm -hmm. even at the end of or what was intended to be the end of cyborg 009 where i won't spoil too much even though it's 60 years old now but two main characters die even though that's the last panel is them dying it ends on a shot of a little kid see he sees a a shooting star and basically he he talks to his sister and she tells him to make a wish and he's like oh i wish for a new toy what are you gonna wish for and she says i'm gonna wish for world peace so it, even when dark stuff happens, it's always optimistic in tone. Yeah. And that's very interesting to address because like the ending of this manga in many respects is it's bleak. Like they succeed in destroying Shocker's plan, but there's no real accountability. The organization of Shocker as a whole. If I remember, I think he still says something similar to like something that would come in Cyborg Zero Nine where he says uh, there will always be a common Rider to fight Shocker or something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, when they're confronting uh, the p- person who's in charge of the October Project and defeating him, there's definitely, like, that ray of hope. Like, even in this desperate situation, you know, Hayato comes back as Kamen Rider and saves Ichimonji and they get her, you know, kind of get out of there and destroy the thing. But it also ends on the note of, like, well, the Japanese government who is behind or was the one who started this entire scheme, there's no accountability that's going to be happening. No one in the, the cabinet is going to resign. What? That never happens yeah but no it's just like kind of that's kind of like <laughs> it's a very cynical and bleak thing of like oh well you know these kind of things are going to continue happening again because the corrupt people in power <laughs> are going to still continue to try and make these schemes in order to control the populace in order to control people for their own profit and their own self-interest and also has the bleak ending of like you know the kid dies yeah i i I, you know what i just cracked open my book i totally forgot that koji died so common rider not one of his more not one of his most optimistic endings no, I mean, no, it yeah. ends on the note of uh, Junko saying, like, man, the thing that's sad is realizing humanity has been using science to weapons in relation to fighting against the wrong enemies. Just this kind of depressing musing of, like, tragedies are going to continue to happen so long as man continues to misuse technology, to use it, again, for their own interest in profit, their own interest in power, rather than to use to help people, because the big thing that's made a motive is, like, shocker, with all their advanced technology, their advanced medicine, they could cure people suffering from diseases like leukemia. They could do so much to help people in the world. Instead, they rather would seek to just enslave and control old people using their technology. They would rather like create like this global conglomerate that will be distributing all these products that people buying that in turn enslave them and just feed into this never ending cycle of working for this entity that you are purchasing from and just like again completely enslaved to like this big corporate over mind thing and that's also entrenched into the political structure so like every aspect of it is you're just under control and it's just yeah it's it's very cynical of that it's very bleak in that respect but you know the it does end on a note of like the this idea of like defying so like recognizing well you know Man is going to continue to misuse science and technology, but so long as people do try and use that power to, in order to help you, or so long as, like, we are defined and critical of people who are trying to amass, like, authority over other people and impose that authority unquestionably and uncritically, like, so long as we continue to challenge that, you know, the fight is going to go on. But yeah, it's, it is, it is very striking just how politically charged it is. I'm just, like, so brazenly, uh, boldly, like, anti-government overreach, uh, anti-late-stage capitalism is not something that really struck me about the work. I mean, especially, like, even earlier on when we had the chapter uh, with the protesters like criticizing the pollution of the factory and you know there's a very clear reference to the Minamata disease like in a protest sign in like the opening spread of like all the protesters like that is just very clearly direct commentary on that still ongoing uh, lawsuit and the case uh, of the Minamata disease and like people like continuing to like try and get a case against the company responsible for that you know to bring them to justice for that which still hadn't happened at the time of the manga being published like the verdict that would make the company that was responsible for the Minamata disease epidemic Chiso that verdict wouldn't be delivered until March 1993 the verdict that like you know favored the 
prosecution against them. So that was this was still like two years out of that. It was still like a very hot button issue that Ishinomura is commenting on. And I think it's something, you know, very close to his heart, this idea of being critical of the overreach of technology and also being critical of like mankind polluting the natural world and creating like diseases uh, that hurt and poison people. And uh, again, the overreach of like entities and companies to like control people. It's very, very interesting stuff in reading this, like just how much it was a commentary and reaction to events of its time. No, for sure. Um, I want to give Phil a chance to talk real quick. If you have anything you want to bring up, just any general thoughts about common writer, storytelling, art, anything you want to talk about? Um, well, I think it's already been said, to be honest. I mean, the one thing that stands out to me, I did like the pollution thing, because like, it's kind of like, it's weird how something 50 years ago is still relevant. Mm-hmm. So that was yep. interesting. <laughs> but um, yeah, the artwork is, I guess when you work on it, actually, like, because I had to retouch a lot of it, you kind of realize how detailed this stuff like really is. And um, I don't even know how it's humanly possible to actually pump out <laughs> oh, the amount of work that he did at that level of detail. Like, there's a scene in the rain when he's fighting the other Kamen Rider. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I can't even imagine how long one page would take or one panel. (laughs) No, for sure. I mean, we haven't said it already, but, like, obviously, the lettering you did for this release is really amazing. And and you you put out a video about, you know, lettering those particular color pages. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like the detail you put into those, like, making it, like, really, like, like like, it already belonged to the art. Like, it wasn't, like, just added in. Like, it lo- it looked like it was just a part of the art all along. Like, the-, the detail you put into that really was just honestly amazing. Thank you. Appreciate that. No, I mean, you did just an incredible job. Like, I mean, again, as mentioned before, you, like, you replicated the, the way the ink bled into the effect itself. <sighs> like, the way it God, smudged yeah. and smeared against the color in the sound effect. Like, you replicated that. That's just an insane amount of attention to detail that you paid, especially in those opening color pages. Like, for every sound effect. And also to get the texture of the brushstroke, like, to match the texture of the original brushstrokes as well. It's just incredible. I want to just ask in general like what were some of the most like challenging or what were some of the most interesting parts of the book to, to letter definitely the color pages were but they were the most fun but yeah i guess any of the the stuff that i find the most fun is because i actually like i'm, I'm a fan of the kind of viz style where you just retouch everything if i can it's a lot of work so you know a lot of publishing companies aren't really they're not really into it because it just it's a huge amount of time invested into this no for sure yeah but I, I've never been a fan of like the idea that you're trying to respect the artwork by covering more of the artwork. That makes sense. Like they don't want to erase sound effects because they want to respect the original, but then you're covering more of the artwork, which is kind of counterintuitive, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, I can see that. So the, the most fun for me is always just when I'm allowed to do a full retouch. So I think, oh, there's like, I think it's Man Spider. He's always saying he, he, he. And there's stuff like that that I was allowed to clean, but it was quite big size. So I always have fun doing stuff like that because I don't know if you know the rules of lettering, but if it's a sound effect, then it could be either subtitled or it could be retouched. But if it's um, actually like a word or like a gasp or something, then it's generally retouched. So if there was any occasion of like screaming or something like that, I always have fun doing those. 
Absolutely. I definitely noticed cases where it seemed like you did like a retouch of like the original effect. And then there are other cases where like you have just like your own off to the side of the original. Like uh, just looking on these opening color pages, like there is like one panel where like there's like a big gushong sound effect. And man, it's just incredible how you also had that same tradition from the white to red color in that. But then in addition to that, you have those screaming gya, and that is just completely replaced the original Japanese. So I just found like an interesting compliment in the lettering. Well, yeah, I would have. What do you guys think? I was going to ask about that, actually, because I don't think I noticed it until I got to the story involving um, Ichimonji going back to his home village where he's fighting that monster like uh, in the sea or whatever. And I noticed like, oh, yeah, like Lum was saying, some some sound effects are just like completely retouched in English. And then there are some sound effects where it's like you kept the original Japanese uh, lettering, but just had a like an English translation sound effect kind of like next to it. I just I just wasn't sure like what exactly like the thought process was behind that or like I guess why you made that choice not necessarily a criticism I was just kind of like curious about that oh no it's fine like I'm always interested to hear what people think because like I said I'm I'm a fan of just retouching everything but in this particular case I was explicitly told not to erase everything and so you end up in a position where for a company like seven c's their style is kind of if it's easy to retouch retouch it if it's big leave it if it's some kind of spoken word or scream or something, then you can erase it. And then it's basically left up to the letterer. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I was. they didn't want me to erase everything because it was kind of falling in line with the Go Ranger. Mm-hmm. So they, okay. they, wanted it, they wanted to treat it as like a collection of Ishinomori's work. I did another one, which was Die Dark, which is for Seven Seas, where I did erase everything. And like, they're okay with it, but I understand that it was kind of, they didn't want to stray too far away from what the previous letterer had done. I think for me, um, I mean, we we talked about this on the show before. Lettering is one of those things that like, you know, not everybody's going to like really pay attention to that thing. But, you know, through reading a bunch of comics for the show, I, I noticed that thing a lot more now. So for me, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, obviously, I I think the work you did on this particular release is really, really good, high quality stuff. And I can't really like sing your praises enough, quite honestly. <laughs> so I will yeah. say that. But for me, when it, when it came to reading this in particular, I guess, like I said, granted, I didn't notice this until like way later. But when I started noticing it, my brain was like, oh, this isn't like very consistent. I, uh-huh. I kind of like my brain's like, oh, it should be like one way or the other. But that's just the thing I noticed that like, you know, I, I got over pretty quickly. But also at the same time, it's like personally, when it comes to lettering, I kind of prefer keeping the original sound effects as is and maybe like having like a translation underneath instead of just like redoing the art. But I mean, as long as the as long as the retouch art is good, I don't really have like a problem with that personally but that's just me okay yeah no it makes sense yeah i agree with the inconsistency thing it's a difficult thing to balance because you've got to try and figure out for sure yeah for this i was a little bit mm, i kind of tried to push it as far as i could just to replace the original and to make it as close to the original i actually designed two fonts for this oh I mean, look, they, they look like they belong to the art originally. Like, the, like if you told me, oh, that that just used to be there. Like, I, I'd right. believe you, honestly. What were the fonts that you designed and wh- where were they used? Like, Oh, they were actually designed for the sound effect, but I didn't use them as fonts. So what I did is I just designed a couple in his style and then I used them as templates for how I was going to draw everything just so that I could get it in the right position. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. Wow. 
So did you hand draw like every sound effect? Yes. Nice. Oh, oh wow. my god. <laughs> I can't imagine how much work that had to have been. <laughs> it took a few months, yeah. I mean, just, again, referring to that video, uh, you posted that video back in May of you doing the Bakum. I can't imagine, like, man, just every effect. And there are a lot of, there are pages with a lot of effects. So, man, just, yeah, yeah that's incredible. Hard-hitting question is, uh, is that the reason it got delayed? Um, No, I, I think I finished it back in, mm, when did I finish it? No, that's, I don't think that is the reason why it got delayed. Although there was a delay on... The production side up but i don't know why probably printing resources i just assume that's what it was yeah could have been printing it could have been translation could have been all kinds of stuff because i think uh lupin got delayed as well yeah a lot of seven seasons later in the year books uh, got delayed especially those hardcover ones yeah i know there's a lot of backup problems <clears throat> with the printers so. yeah big uh industry-wide printing uh shortage yeah, so uh, p- p- people people want manga too much. Oh yeah, I mean they're flying <laughs> off the shelves. Yeah, but I really want to shout out going back to specific moments that just blew me away. Like at the start again of chapter uh, three, the third part, like pages two hundred four to two hundred five. There's that spread of all the protesters. Uh, uh, like, like that, <laughs> that blew me away because you had to re-letter all those signs, uh, mm-hmm. all the banners, and a lot of those were hidden behind sound effects, like a lot oh, of those man. words uh, <laughs> and other art elements of the art. And just looking at how much text was there, I was just blown away. Like, oh my god, how how much work? How long did, did this have to take to? do all this it's insane yeah yeah it took a couple months to finish the whole thing but that's probably my favorite page actually that was it really is fun. a fantastic page it is a good page i mean amongst all the other like really good two-page spreads because i think i tweeted out about this i I think that particular story had a lot of my like favorite two-page spreads in the series yeah mm. yeah his two-page spreads are amazing oh my god I think these are some of the best spreads I've seen in manga in general. Like they're just they're just so good. It's weird though because they're so like if you you know it's the same with um, Go Nagai. Like it's like got a simplicity to it because I guess of when it was when it was actually created, it's got like a perfect balance, hasn't it? It's like it's simple, but it's not, and it's just got it's just artwork, isn't it? At the end of the day, I think that's what a lot of comics are missing nowadays. It's it's they've kind of like shifted more away from the artistic side. Yeah, I mean, as experimental as he is, like, at the end of the day, the layouts are just incredibly readable because they're, like, very simple to follow, very clear. The action, the poses are incredibly strong. So, like, you always know what is going on. Like, the action is always super clear to you. You can very easily follow everything. And that's what makes it such an incredible page turner, even though, like, again, he is incredibly experimental with his sequences, like a lot of sequences in the man bat chapter but also like there's a two-page spread in the middle of the final chapter which is just like ichimonji throwing a pillow at junko when she shoots him and then we just see like different moments of the action him throwing the pillow like running up to her when she's distracted by that like punching her out and just catching her it's just He's incredibly playful with like laying out panels and different ways of communicating action in his sequential storytelling. I just found that just so interesting to see different ways in which he was playing, but how to communicate an action scene. No, th- that sequence you mentioned is probably also in, like another one of my favorite like just comic sequences in general. 
I mean, we, we've been talking about the art a lot. I mean, the, I think the art is the best part of this series, in my opinion. Um, I don't like here's the thing. I think I, I have very mixed feelings on the transition from Hongo to Ichimonji. Yeah. Because w- w- without knowing the context behind like what was happening in the TV show, honestly, like as someone who was just like just kind of reading this for the first time, it felt kind of jarring to me a little bit. I mean, it is because Ichimonji, you know, he's just introduced in that chapter. Like he's an evil one, of the evil con writers, you know, they have a fight. He gets knocked out and he gets like kind of rescued and healed up. And then he comes in at the last second to like save Ongo. And then he just decides, well, I'm going to take up your mantle now. You know, your body's too damaged to continue on. So I will fight in your stead. I'll carry on your will. And then they rescue Hongo's brain and he can communicate with Ichimonji and they just go off from there. But it's a very sudden introduction to the character of Ichimonji. Like we don't have a lot of setup. He's just introduced when Reiko just brings him over. You know, we get that he's a journalist who's like investigating Hongo's kidnapping, but we don't get a whole lot of characterization from him other than like he's a victim of shocker uh you know and very similar to hongo and the the thematic note that it ends on is that like hongo all this time has kind of been you know angsty about the fact that he feels like alone is the only one of his kind the only like cyborg who is not under shocker's control and then the note at the end of the chapter is like well now that he and ichimonji are together they're riding along by side they're no longer alone in the world anymore and that's that's a good idea but again it's like again the, the character of ichimonji we just didn't get a, a lot of setup to him in the chapter itself a lot of characterization for him and next part after that tries to rectify that by you know letting us uh, visit his home and learn some of his past and then let more of his personality play out and that's fine but it, it again it just is very abrupt resolution to Hongo's character arc which also very like jarring, at the yeah. end of the story when Hongo returns as like a full android is like this feels like a conflicts or like it doesn't quite jive with the whole conflict he had early on in the story where he was like horrified with the fact that his body was like no longer human that he felt himself becoming more and more of a machine that he felt like he was more of himself when he was wearing the Conrider mask like his real face was not like his actual face anymore he was just becoming more common writer and he was just feeling like he just this illusionist this disassociation with his own humanity and just all this existential angst about like being a cyborg and then at the end he's like oh no i got a full android body now and i'm here to rescue you and there's just not enough time to like go over well what changed his mind to you know accept his state in that decision i mean honestly becoming just like a a brain like all that's left of him being a brain should be something that maybe makes him you know, given pause, like, am I even human anymore? Even I less than a human than I was before at this point. But you know, there's just nothing, no time to dwell on that. So it, it, the the character arcs of Hongo and other characters in the series, there's a lot of other characters that were important to Hongo just end up dropping off. Like Ruriko disappears after Hongo's body is destroyed. Uh, Tobe pretty much disappears. He shows up in the last story, but he doesn't really have much more to contribute to other than like a, a sight gags, really. No, it, it really felt like a soft reboot. Yeah. So characters, yeah, like our, our main two writers with Hongo, I feel like his character arc just doesn't have a satisfying, like, true line. And then really, Ichimonji, no. 
it, a lot of it, like his personality, as mentioned before, is like, you know, he's more laid back, uh, or rather he's more quippy, snarky, like he's not as broody as Hongo, but he still has that angst of like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with how much of a cyborg I am, or like how human I, I still am, and I also am kind of, like he's not as fearful of like, you know, falling in love or admitting that he has romantic feelings, but he still has trepidations. But ultimately, you know, there also isn't a big closure to that character arc either. So from that standpoint, yeah, I feel like the character writing ends up just kind of falling apart or just kind of fizzles out because, you know, just the way the story ended up being told. Uh, I, I think the the abrupt change to introduce Ichimonji definitely kind of shook things up in a way where I don't know if Nishinomori really how to take the story at that point other than the broader political commentary that you know has the consistent through lines throughout the story but the, the character true lines just they don't quite come together no yeah I definitely agree um, if I can make an, uh, another Spider-Man comparison uh, going from Hayato to Ichimonji is kind of like going from Tobey Maguire to uh, Andrew Garfield in a way they're both very different characters uh, in their own right for sure and yeah, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, um, Ooh, honestly, this might be a more inter- an interesting comparison. This is kind of like going from Bruce Wayne as Batman, Batman the Anime Series, to Terry McGinnis and Batman Beyond, but with also the mentorship angle of like Bruce mentoring Terry and stuff like that. Okay, I, I could see that. Of course, Hongo is not as curmudgeonly, but he's also like the stern kind of mentor type to Hayato. In no, for sure. Story. No, I could see that. Um, yeah, no, but I, I was really, I mean. I, I don't want to make it sound like uh, once we got introduced to Ichibonji that, like, I suddenly hated the series or something, because I still enjoyed it all the way through. But I, I there's definitely a clear, like, halfway point for me where I'm like, oh, this is still good. But, like, I definitely enjoyed, like, the first half of this manga way more than I did the second half. Whereas I feel like because the first half of the manga, while you could argue that, like, you know, it's it's not, like, necessarily the deepest thing you'll ever read, but it's still, like... You know, there's still, like, enough there to chew on, and it's still, like, a very enjoyable story. Like, you can kind of take it at face value if you want to, and it's it's a simple enough story, to, and, you know, I, I feel like the art really carries it for most of the way through, and you can still enjoy it on that level. Whereas I feel like when Ichimonji is introduced, and especially when we get to, like, the final story, I feel like, man, it feels like Ishinomori is, like, really trying to tackle so much in this final story. It was it was kind of a lot for me to, like, kind of keep up with personally, but that's just me. Yeah, as much as I found Junko and Koji compelling in that story, it was so jarring to get to that story and then just have to accept that, oh, these are characters that Hayato has known all this time, but we're just now getting introduced to them. And we end up just having to learn about them in that story itself. So it, it, it feels trying to like, a lot of exposition have to, like the emotional there, yeah. crux of that final story being to ultimately try and save Koji. Like it felt, you know, it's very sudden to just put that all on this final story rather than like have those characters be introduced prior and maybe have some more time to really get to know them. And especially because, again, like other supporting characters had fallen off by that point. So it just, it felt like the series had become something completely different. Because in also that final story, until like the end where he shows up in the, you know, full android body, like 
unlike in the fifth story, Kongo really isn't mentoring or giving advice to Hayato. Like, he's on his own. He doesn't have, like, Hongo's voice in his head. So you're like, okay, where? what happened to the Hongo here? Like, I thought he was connected to Hayato and giving him advice and can feel what he's feeling and all that. But that's not really addressed until the final 20 pages where he turns back. So, Like, I honestly, I think I would have preferred, like, if you were going to try to keep Hongo in the story in some capacity, like, I wish it were done a little better, because if not, then I, I almost kind of prefer he just kind of be taken out of the story entirely, honestly, because he just he just kind of felt so, like, tacked on at the end, and, like, there's not really a place for him, but we're going to try to find a place for him anyway, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I feel like at that point, Ishinori knew the series was concluding, and he wanted to bring him back, because he knew, like, well, Hongo... Hongo should have some closure. He should have a part in the, the climax of That's this. That's fair. But yeah, I do think that in terms, again, the, the character writing, there are just those inconsistencies that did keep me from getting fully, like, emotionally connected with the characters in a way that I would have liked. Same, yeah. However, uh, again, I ultimately, what I appreciate about the story is, like, the broader ideas that Ishinori was going with. Like, I think the action, as NR does we mentioned before, is the greatest strength. But again, I do appreciate that this story ultimately is, again, very anti-authoritarian and also very anti-monopoly, anti-being uh, criti critical of the invasion of technology and how that affects our lives. And a lot of those themes are incredibly relevant today in a post you know patriot act era a post amazon era google era so like it holds up extremely well uh, his oh yeah political commentary on that end and that strew line i think carries through the book and so that makes the ending satisfying to be on that level but yeah i just wish the character arcs came to get a, a little more no i agree um we could talk about the ending a little bit because, like, it was around that point where, like, Shocker's base, like, explodes and literally Hayato's like, oh, no, we forgot to get a scientist to help uh, save Koji or whatever. Like, it just, I know it wasn't intentional, but I did kind of laugh at that, like, that sudden page turn. Uh, going from, oh no, we forgot to get a scientist for Koji, and then immediately, oh, Koji's dead. Like, it just kind of felt like a parody, almost. It, it was just, like, I, I know it was supposed to be, like, a serious, like, dramatic beat, and it was supposed to, like, I guess hit you out of nowhere, and I guess it kind of did, but I don't, it, it was just kind of hard for me to take seriously, unfortunately. I think the execution could have been better, like, the realization dawning, like, oh no, and the realization of the truth, because then we immediately transition to the news of Koji being dead. And that is like a sad scene, you know, a somber scene. So, so, so I think the execution at a moment, I could have been a little stronger of like them realizing, oh, no, we need to get the scientists and then failing to do that and just having that heartbreaking, crushing realization, like the thing that they were fighting for, they failed at doing. Ultimately, they have stopped Shocker's plan, but they failed to save Koji. And I wish they had emphasized that point a little bit more strongly. I think it ended as well as it could have, considering its circumstances. Yeah. And I'm very curious about the circumstances of why it ended the way it did, because obviously the series, you know, it ended well before the show did, I think. And I'm wondering why it ended. 
Why was it cut short? Did Ishinomori cut him short himself? The the magazine publisher say, well, we want to cut this short. I, I don't really know. So that makes me curious to see, like, again, interrogate the reason, like, why the story ended up going the direction it did. I don't know why it ended like that. Maybe they just thought it was the manga was getting too dark for the TV show. Uh, but one of the things you'll notice if you watch the TV show first is that none of the iconic overarching villains from the show are in the manga. They have the monsters like Spider-Man and Batman, but they don't have like the overarching villains that are like actual like people like the mastermind kind of villains. The first one is Colonel Zoll, who's a, a former Nazi that's working for Shocker. And he's like the first overarching villain that the Kamen Rider show has. He's not in the manga at all. Another famous one is Dr. Shinigami. He's like every iteration of Kamen Rider now always brings up Dr. Shinigami, but he's not a character in this at all. He's even in the... They even use stock footage of the actor in the 2006 Kamen Rider remake movie, which is not very good. <laughs> but they at least played stock footage of him when they're showing like the shocker leaders. And then they got two actors to play two made up characters, but they got stock footage of Dr. Shinigami. And then the only villain they have is they have the robot who's I th think his name was just Big Machine. Yeah. <laughs> and his design is... It was the basis for the villain Ambassador Hell, who is much more interesting than Big Machine. Um, I know that the character went... Th originally, they were going to bring Big Machine as a villain in this TV show, but he wound up getting redesigned into a character. I think it was called like Big Zero or something, where it was instead of cyborg... Uh, like He was more like a cyborg and then eventually changed again to just be Ambassador Hell. So that was something I thought was weird, that they never incorporated those characters, especially because Toru Hirayama came up with a really interesting backstory for a lot of these characters. Like I said, with uh, Colonel Zoll, his backstory was that he was a Nazi that you know ran concentration camps. And then after the war, he got recruited by Shocker or Dr. Shinigami uh, or even Shocker's great leader, who's like the, the monster with the eyeball. I don't know if you guys have ever seen what Shocker's great leader, uh, Shocker's great leader looks like. Yeah, it's like a, it is cloaked for me as like a red KKK outfit. Yes, but if under the cloak, he is an eyeball man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a big white face with veins and a green eyeball. Jeez. And Hiriyama came up with a really cool backstory where he was a he was a monk that discovered enlightenment and and basically like opened up his third eye. But through his third eye, he began to like become like eventually demons came to possess his body, and he eventually became this just like incarnation of wickedness until he was nothing but that one eye on his face. And it's a really interesting backstory that never gets incorporated into. Uh, they actually don't reveal it in the show. It was something Hiriyama released. Uh, I forget in a book or, or something where he he said that was his backstory for the Great Leader. But yeah, and and the Great Leader doesn't appear in the manga at all. So the comic must have gotten cut off pretty early on because I think at Colonel Zoll comes in around episode twenty four or something in the in the early twenties, um, and they didn't incorporate any of that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I, I kind of thought this was like, because uh, we've read manga like uh, Speed Racer and Doro on the show before, too, where it seems like, you know, for both of those series, the manga kind of like ends around the time where like the anime either ends or like starts to lose steam or whatever. It's like, okay, it's time to wrap up this thing where it's like here. Yeah, clearly the manga for this ended like way before the series because it seemed like the actual TV series ran for like another two years after the manga ended. Yeah, I mean, the series ran for two years. It's 98 episodes in the manga. It just it ended within 1971. So it's curious, like why they cut it short. 
I do think that maybe it was, to John's point, like, I think Ishinomori was just pushing the boundaries too much for Shonen Magazine with his commentary, with how dark the story was, with how critical it was of the Japanese government. So probably, I think uh, that probably cut it short. Uh, in the same way, Barefoot Gen was removed from Jump after just four volumes worth of story. And it's funny because he does it again in... I think 1972 was his manga Robot Detective. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with that, where that was also a manga that was a tie-in with a tokusatsu property. But the final arc is there's two political parties and like the the villain is like assassinating people from a political party. And it's it's it has a lot of the same stuff. Like it has the pollution stuff from Common Rider too. So it has all these like uh, environmental issues and political issues going on while people are being assassinated. Meanwhile, it's to promote a kids show about a robot solving mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! To be fair, he is solving mysteries about robots killing people, but it's still a, it's still meant to be a kids show. And yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about. Um, I guess um. I don't know if you guys have like any anything else you want to talk about maybe before we get into questions soon or Yeah, I would like to just hear Phil and John's like overall thoughts and stuff because I mean you and me like we just kind of went off there about like oh well here's where the storytelling didn't work for us but I mean what are your guys like overall feelings on the way the story developed I wonder whether or not it's just a sign of the times, to be honest, why the way it was cut short. Like, because I noticed it with a lot of other, maybe not manga, but I feel like everything was just shorter. Not necessarily the series, but it's just like when you have like a fight sequence, it's only like two pages and then the guy's dead. You know, if you look at something like Dragon Ball, where they drag it out over like 20 books versus something like Kamen Rider. I mean, when he's fighting, uh, when he's fighting, is it Man Spider? It's like, it's really short when you think about it. So I wonder whether there's not actually any other reason other than he just wanted to end it. It really feels like a lot of manga from this time, like no matter how popular it ends up being like decades after the fact, Mm -hmm. like, you know, in the moment, like in its immediate history, like it doesn't like run for too long and like maybe not much longer than like maybe like four or five volumes or something. Yeah, it could also be the whim of the author for sure. Of like, I mean, we just mentioned before earlier that Ishinomori like changed his mind of like what he wanted the show to be about from Cross Man to Skull Man. So maybe it's just like you know he got super into the idea of doing this manga, and then he just kind of you know fizzled out and lost interest after a certain point. And probably and yeah. Yeah, it could be on his own terms. Like we did mention before uh, on the Doro episode that you know Doro was canceled, but it also ended in part because Tezuka lost interest and wanted to do a different project. Right. Yeah. I've read a lot of interviews with the Japanese manga artists. And again, it's that balance between simplicity and complexity. On one hand, the artwork is amazing. But on the other hand, I kind of get the impression that a lot of manga artists don't actually take it that seriously. Like they do look at it like it's they want to produce the best product that they can. But they also realize that it's I mean, it's crazy. Some monsters fighting and it's just, you know, it's a bit silly. Yeah, they don't always take it like too seriously. Right. They understand that it's not a novel. It's entertainment. Yeah. So it could be that he just, you know, thought mm, it's not that serious, is it? Just finish. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think if he kept the, um, it kind of sucks that the character changed in the middle because you can't really relate to it. If it, if it was from start to finish, Hongo Takeshi, then I think it would have been a lot more interesting. And towards the end, he's not even Kamen Rider, is he? Uh, there's like a whole arc where he's just fighting as himself. I um, can't remember who he's fighting, but he's not even in the suit or anything. 
you know, where he's fighting Big Machine, you mean? Or Well, there's long stretches in the fifth part and the sixth part where he's not fighting in the costume as much. Like he's Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can't remember who he's fighting. Yeah, I, I could I can remember either. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a lot of characters. I thought it, I don't think it's the crab. He's not even a crab. Yeah, yeah, I think it was actually. I couldn't remember either. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not. It's kind of like Kamen Rider doesn't even show up. That's also interesting because this is something that's not super explained. Much like how where did he get the the costume and helmet? But it, the implication is that Hongo needs the motorcycle to help him transform the Khan Rider, which is not really a detail that is brought up with Hayato. So, oh wow, you know, I'm just realizing they didn't bring this up in the. Oh, uh, so yeah, and when the Kamen Rider show starts, he needs to hit a certain uh speed to transform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then when they introduce Hayato, he's like, oh, no, I don't need to do that. I can just do a pose and that transforms me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I just realized they don't They don't even mention that in the manga. No, they don't. Yeah. Because, like, the whole idea of why he needs to do that and why he needs to ride a motorcycle is because wind is what energizes him. Wind coursing through his cyborg body is what fuels him with power. That's why he, like, fights on the motorcycle. That's, what, that's a big part of why it's part of, like, his fighting style. But that's yeah, not really a factor, not really addressed that much once, uh, you know, Hayato takes over. But even in the TV show, I think in the original TV series, I think the first time he changes in the Kamen Rider, he just, like, jumps. He, like, just jumps off a cliff. And then comes back as Kamen Rider. Yep, because when he was falling, he hit the right speed to transform. <laughs> I'm also wondering, like, who came up with the name Kamen Rider? Because I, I, if I remember correctly, I think one of the, like, shocker goons is just like, oh, it's Kamen Rider. And I'm like, well, wait, when did we... Like, how did he, like, get that name? Like, did did that random mook name him? Like... Didn't he just self-address himself as Kamen Rider? He does, yeah. He call, he, say, he says, I'm now Kamen Rider. Yeah. Okay. And it's a pretty simple name. It's just, you know, masked Rider. He's wearing a mask. <laughs> In the uh, live-action movie from 2006, I thought this actually made sense, even though it's not a good movie. He calls himself Kamen Rider, but the other monsters and Shocker all call him uh, Hopper Kaijin. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good um because their way of getting around the uh man bat batman stuff was they revamped the names and instead they call themselves spider kaijin and bat kaijin mm. um and so when they talk about hongo they refer to him as hopper kaijin that makes sense that's yeah. a clever way to do it i mean i guess john before we move on i mean i guess if you have any overall thoughts you want to share um no i think the common writer manga it uh it's great visually uh, cool story. I like that other adaptations have done stuff with it. I like the Skullman's adaptation of it as well. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really good. Nice. Yeah. I guess I also had a question uh, for you about like your thoughts on the new translation versus the previous translation on Collins Because I saw you comment on it when you were going yeah. through the book. In particular, I remember you mentioning you feel like the Great Escape of Steve McQueen reference in the new translation came across a little more stiff than in the previous one. Yeah, there were there's uh there's like a handful of translation quirks I'm not a fan of in this release. Um, I'm happy to have a hardcover big volume of Common Rider, so it's not like it's it's it didn't stop me from buying it. But I do prefer the Comicsologies translation. This one in particular, one of the things that I, it leaves in honorifics, which are you know back and forth. Half some people like them, some people hate them, but. One thing I liked is that in the comicsology one is that they changed people referring to each other by their family name to their first name. So like 
uh, Tobe Tachibana calls him Takeshi because that sounds less formal and more personal, um, which is how it's supposed to come off as opposed to always calling him Hongo. They also do this weird thing where he always, uh, they gave Tobe Tachibana a kind of an odd voice where he always says my boy and my lad, which isn't in the comicsology translation. And I guess to make him, you know, sound like a caring old man, they kind of did that, but I wasn't really a fan of it. There was a couple of lines that felt weird too, like there's one I wrote down where in the comicsology, it's Spider-Man is telling people to telling shocker soldiers to shoot at Takeshi Hongo. And in the comicsology translation, it just says, what are you waiting for? Shoot him. In the Seven Seas translation, it says, you there, open fire. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. There's another one where Ruriko is crying and the comicsology one just has asterisk, uh, like italicized text that says sob, sob. But the Seven Seas one, she says boo-hoo-hoo, which made me laugh and wasn't the intention. Yeah, that was <laughs> that to me seemed a little more comical than what it should have yeah. come across as. With like her genuinely crying, us appreciating, oh, she's really sad. Like but when I feel like you just can't take boo-hoo-hoo seriously. No, you just no associate I, that I with like babyish crying or cries for attention. Right. And then there was this the Steve McQueen line, which is I actually checked that bef- as soon as I got the manga. That was the line I wanted to check. So I have a screenshot of it here because I want to I want to make sure I get both lines perfectly. All right. So um, in the comicsology translation, there's a, it's the scene at the end where they're riding their motorcycles and they're going to do a jump. And um, in the comicsology translation, Kamen Rider says, let's go. And then Taki says, if this is our great escape, you're Steve McQueen, which is just a, you know. Nice reference. Ashinomori was a fan of the film. Um, but in the new translation, he says, make a break for it. And then Taki says, it's the great escape with Steve McQueen. It's like just saying it's the great escape, which maybe if you translate it literally, that's what it it's says. It's the reference. But it sounds, yeah, it sounds less personable, less conversational. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think like, yeah, well, him attributing thing. oh, like you riding your bike, this is reminding me of Steve Queen, where it's like, in the new translation, it's like, oh, he's making a reference. I was like, oh, it's like this. But yeah, I, I totally feel it stands more natural. It's, it's very much like a, I understood that reference kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- this reminds me of the time I saw The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. Literally, Peter just in the theater watching it, and there's no commentary, just meeting popcorn. And there's like, <laughs> just watching the movie. We're just watching, watching the movie. <laughs> oh, they would do that. Um, no, that's interesting. Um, I- I'm glad. I'm glad you brought these up because, again, I honestly, if Seven Seas didn't pick this up, I would have just gotten to that Comicsology release uh, eventually. But um, I don't know, like for for whatever we can say about our criticisms about this release, like it's still it's still worth picking up. I think like I'm really glad that I own this. Yeah, I think the translation overall is really solid. It was just interesting moments like that that I kind of wanted John's thoughts in comparison. Yeah, I, I would say it just has some quirks that are worth mentioning. Actually, I'm sorry, re- real quick. One thing I do want to mention before we move on to questions is, um, and I tweeted about this too. Um, so I'm not sure if this is a printing mistake, but uh, this printing actually like prints the first couple pages like twice. So I'm, I'm literally looking at it right now. It goes title page, ta- uh, table of contents, the first like four color pages, and then it goes right back to the title page again. And it just starts from there again, like... I'm not really sure, like, what happened there. I, that has to be a printing error. That is not in my issue. That's that's so weird. 
Yeah, I think you just ended up getting a copy of the book with a printing error. It's just like that time where we, Lord, and I discovered at our local Barnes and Nobles a copy of uh, Fujita's Ghost and the Lady that was the was printed backwards. Like it was literally printed flipped. <sighs> like the cover was on the wrong way. Like you know, you open oh, wow. the cover of the book and then the pages are upside down, and it's it was very funny. But yes, yeah, sometimes those kind of uh, things happen. It's just interesting anomalies. Okay. I, I was genuinely wondering if, like, it was like that across literally every printed release or whatever. But, like, man, I, hey, maybe this will be worth money one day. I don't know. <laughs> it's certainly uh, one of a kind, presumably. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think overall, I, I think we can wholeheartedly recommend this release. Like, honestly, like, e- even if I do have, like, personally, you know, certain portions of the manga that I like more than others, like, I still like this all the way through. And honestly, those first, like, three chapters or storylines or whatever you call them, like, man, those were some of my favorite comics that I think I've read for this podcast. Like, it, it was just, like, such a joy to read. I, I literally haven't read anything else like it. It was like really good. Yeah, I think it's very entertaining and very cool. And absolutely, especially in those first two chapters, like Ishinomori's action sequence is really the whole book. His action art is just incredible. But like the especially experimental stuff, like the special cinematic stuff are just incredible. Like rarely have I seen such level of ambition and just such level of detail in that kind of like visual action storytelling, breaking down moments beat by beat in the space of a single puzzle in the space of multiple panels it's just really really interesting really cool comics i really appreciate a lot and definitely energized me to like try and learn as much about Gon rider nishimori and i definitely want to read more of his works and cover them absolutely on the show so same same. really really excited about that so good yeah um but here lum is it okay if i read our uh one twitter question we got absolutely um, we kind of talked about this at the beginning, but I, I did just want to read the one Twitter question we got from Elitist Stang Kevs. I hope I said that right. Um, and they ask, uh, have you watched the succeeding shows and what is your favorite from them? So I kind of mentioned like a lot of the ones I've watched um, and I, I don't want to literally go through everything I've watched. But basically, like, um, I guess out of all the writer series that are out there, like, I've seen like a lot of the Heisei stuff, not really any of the Showa stuff, but um, man, I don't know if I really have to think back on like any writer series that I've watched like in full. Oh, that's tough, honestly. And maybe it's just because it was my first one, but because uh, the first writer I ever watched was Common Writer Deno, uh, which is specifically the one with um uh the the one with the guy who basically has like access to like three different kinds of suits because like three different creatures like invade his body or whatever. And like he rides around and like or I guess I should say like the monster characters in that ride around like a time traveling train or whatever. And it has like a little cafe inside where they can kind of hang out. And it's it's a really like cool premise and idea or whatever. And um I think I also like that series specifically because like a lot of the monster characters in that one are voiced by a lot of like popular anime voice actors that I think a lot of people would know. And yeah, I just I thought and again, it's probably because it was my first one, but I I want to say that one's probably my favorite one. Um, I have a lot of fond memories of like watching through that for the first time. And I, I eventually want to do like a rewatch. But yeah, no, I I eventually want to get back in the common Rider after spending like so much time away from uh, from it. But um, yeah, um, that that's basically my pick. Um, I don't know if you guys have any answers for this one. I know you guys haven't seen like a lot of writers in particular. I like the original, but I, to be honest, I haven't really seen that many. So Hey, good choice. Um, 
I mean, are, are there any that you guys like are interested in, I guess, in particular? I'll say um, I've actually watched, I did skip around a bit, but I did watch through uh, most of Kamen Rider V3, which is the direct follow up to the original Kamen Rider. And I watched it because one, um, it's actually legally available. Technically, there is a company in Hawaii where the series aired subtitled and did very well. So a Hawaiian company officially licensed it and releases it on DVD and their DVDs are expensive because they are, you know, really just for collectors, not really a, a mass market thing. But uh, they had a sale. It was like a hundred bucks. But I was like, you know what? No other Kamen Rider series is available right now. So I, I put down the money and I bought Kamen Rider V3 on DVD. So I've seen through most of that. And another reason I like it is because the main character, uh, Shiro Kazumi, is actually played by Hiroshi Miyauchi who is my favorite Showa error and probably all tokusatsu actor. Um, he's the main character in Kaiketsu Zubat. He's Owl Ranger, the Blue Ranger in Go Ranger. And he's known for being a Japanese cowboy. If you look him up, he's always <laughs> he always plays a cowboy. Even in his cameo in the Spider-Man tokusatsu, he actually dresses, he still dresses like a cowboy. Oh, man. Yeah, he's he's very charismatic and my favorite Showa era actor. And I thought he was great as V3. And V3 also has like that really, the show actually has like the dark drama that you would see from the manga. Like Shiro Kazumi, his whole motivation is that Destron, who is like the new iteration of Shocker, they kill his whole family in the first episode, his mom, his dad, and his sister. And and it's a lot of fun. And even like later they introduce like this, their second rider, Rider Man, who has great story going for him. Um, so yeah, very much recommend V3. And there is also an episode where they actually revive the old Kamen Rider villains. So you do get to see Ambassador Hell and Colonel Zal come back and, and all those guys. Nice. Okay. Uh, anyone that you're interested in, Lum? I'm interested in Game because it's the one Urobochi wrote and I find him an interesting writer. I am open to checking out other shows if our listeners have suggestions for me of, you know, what I might like. I mean, I definitely am curious to watch more of the original. I think that I gravitate towards more the manga version of Common Rider. So that made me more interested in seeking out other Ishinian Bori works more so than Common Rider. But I did like what I see of the shows and I did want to watch some more episodes. So I probably will. And yeah, I'm interested in the... Fudo P anime and uh, checking out the manga for that if it hopefully gets licensed and since it's a sequel to Double I would be interested in checking out Double. I mean if I can make a recommendation because not a lot of Common Rider is like legally available at this point but hopefully we'll get there eventually. Um, Out of all the ones that are like legally available I would highly recommend Kuga. That one's very good. Okay. It's probably you know I, I said Deno's my favorite but Kuga is either like my second favorite or like it's probably tied. I don't know because Kuga was super good, um, and I, I really need to watch that now that it's like legally streaming. Because I'm pretty sure like the fan subs I watched for it back in the day weren't super great, so I would like to rewatch it eventually. But yeah, I mean, look if 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 I wasn't gonna say it, Allison would have found you and eventually be like, "Hey, you should watch <laughs> Kuga. You should watch Kuga." Okay, well, I definitely will have to check it out. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the one Twitter question we got. Lum, if you want to read off our Reddit questions. Well, I think a good one to transition to from Reddit is from Marvel the Size of 97, who asks, where do I start with Comrider? Start with whatever's the most interesting to you, or I guess whatever's legally available, if if that's something you care about in particular. Like I said, Common Rider is, 
like out of all the big tokusatsu franchises, I think in terms of like legal availability outside of Japan, I think Kamen Rider has like the worst of it, unfortunately, because like, you know, we have a lot of Ultraman available at this point, which is pretty cool. And I know like a good chunk of Sentai or Super Sentai is like pretty available, or at least like enough of it. But like, yeah, Kamen Rider, we're just I think we're just kind of getting started on like having even like some of that available. I don't know. I, I hope we keep getting more of it because we do need more of it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if there's like a good starting place for Common Rider. I mean, again, it really just, I think it just depends on what you're interested in. Like, if you don't like older shows, for whatever reason, like the Showa era might not be interesting to you. If you want slightly newer shows, you can check out some of the Heisei stuff. Um, I mean, honestly... Maybe this original manga could be a good starting place, just as long as you know that, like, the rest of the Kamen Rider franchise isn't really like this. Like, what I like about this iteration of Kamen Rider, like, the manga and the original show is that, like, again, it's very different from the rest of the franchise in that it's, like, it's very, like, spooky and somewhat horror-based a little bit, like... I mean, he did more... Ishimori did set out to scare children. He wanted to make a scary series, <laughs> so I think he succeeded. <laughs> Yeah, like that that aspect of Common Rider is like very much distilled and almost non-existent in like the further you get on into the franchise. So if you're if you're more into that, maybe stick with the older stuff. But again, like I said, it's I think it depends on like what you're interested in and like what captures your interest. Like there's I don't think there's like a good starting point. Like each writer is kind of its own series like very few of them are like connected if at all really so there's that yeah and if there ever is like a crossover or anything they will explain to you in like a character will go ah it is this guy who does this from this so you're not gonna (laughs) miss anything not really no yeah well john phil do you guys have any suggestions about where to start with conrider or even to extend the question where to get start with getting into ishinomori's stuff i'd probably start at the manga to be honest Obviously, I've not really watched much of the TV show, but I think I think you always get like a filtered, watered down version when you get into TV shows because, yeah, I mean, I guess the comic was aimed at kids, but the generations change, right? So what's acceptable changes. Um, so if you kind of want the real, what I would consider the real thing, then I would probably say start with the manga or some of the seven, you know, the 70s TV show. Mm-hmm, for sure. Because I just, I actually just found out recently, this might be common knowledge, but the reason that they change the Kamen Rider every year is actually to accommodate the mothers of the children that watch the show. Did you guys know that? No, I didn't know that, actually. Oh, that's like something from the 2000s. Yeah, where there was, um, I think it was the actor who played the Kamen Rider in, uh, was it Ryuki or Kuga? Where it was like a heart, he was like a heartthrob actor, and it got a lot of <laughs> mothers to watch the show. <laughs> right. And, and that's actually how it's basically playing out nowadays is they've realized that in order to get the mothers on the side of buying the toys, you have to kind of make them a good looking superhero, which I actually think is That genius. makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> and they're actually saying that a lot of like women prefer it more than male. I don't know if that's true. I could see it, honestly. Toku definitely has a huge uh, female fan base for sure. Oh, I feel like they all do. Um, and also they go, they have a lot of kind of events in Japan, don't they? Where you can actually go meet them and, you know, it's always going to be the mothers taking the child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I always feel like because of that, I that's kind of why I prefer manga overall. I feel like even when it comes into anime or any kind of TV show, I feel like you kind of lose something. I don't know why. 
but I just feel like the manga. No, I, I can see that. Yeah, there's it's it's pretty violent. You know, there's like people just getting their heads blown off, and Man Spider gets his arms ripped off. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, it's, it's kind of stuff you can't really do on TV. So I definitely start there. Yeah, and John. Uh... Well, when I um when I recommend the Nishinomori work, I uh, I always go with what I you know I, it's kind of the very basic answer, but. Cyborg 009 is always the recommendation I throw out, but I also recommend, and again, this is kind of basic, but the Kakaider manga is great, and the tokusatsu for that, not as good, I would say. The character of Kakaider has a lot of internal conflict with him being a robot that is swept under the rug in the tokusatsu for him instead touting himself as a hero of justice. Uh, I would also say Robot Detective, even if the opening to Robot Detective is kind of slow, I will say that with Robot Detective, what differentiates it from the toku mostly is there's a lot less robot fights in the manga, which I actually think makes it more interesting that it has a lot more to do with actually solving mysteries and, you know, a lot to do with the Japanese politics at the time. So I, I always recommend the Robot Detective manga to people. So that one isn't legally available at this time, but it has been fan translated, so you might accidentally stumble across it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, Cyborg 009, legally available. It, it's been out of print physically, but it is available digitally, and you can get like $5, you get, what, 200-something pages. So I was going to say, so is that like all legally available? I wasn't sure if that was the case. Cyborg 009, Inazu Man, uh, Skull Man, Kamen Rider, now with the Seven Seas release, Go Ranger is available. But a lot of the manga are not. So like Robot Detective, I'm trying to think of other ones that have been fan translated, but like a lot of his hero stuff hasn't been um, like Uchu Tetsujin Kyodain hasn't been translated, though the Tokusatsu show has. Inazu Man is, is legally translated and the Tokusatsu was legally, it's actually been physically released again by that company in Hawaii, who are actually called Generation Kikaida because they started by releasing Kikaida. Yeah, and the Kikaida manga is legally available. The Kikaider Tokusatsu and Kikaider Zero One, even though Kikaider Zero One uh, kind of fumbles a bit, but now now I'm just naming things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was um I was specifically asking about Cyborg Zero Zero Nine because I I was under the impression for some reason that like most of it got translated on Comicsology, but it's not. I don't know if that's right or not. The first ten volumes, so. Yeah, the first 10 volumes are translated, which ends where the original comics ending was intended, but then eventually the series came back. Right, because there's like 36 in total, right? Because he kept coming back for different runs in different magazines. That sounds about right. For some reason, I thought it was 27, but if you're saying 36 could also be right. So for the official release of Cyborg 009, the first 10 volumes which ends where Ashinomori originally tended to end the series and is where the 2001 series ends. That's all available on Comixology. Mm, okay. Um, and then I think up to volume 19 is what's been fan translated. Those first 10 volumes were also released in print by Tokyopop in the mid-2000s. So if you want to hunt those down, you can try, but it's much cheaper to just get it digitally. But uh, I am wondering how similar the translations were. I would wager a guess that maybe the Comixology translation is better, possibly. I believe they're the same. Ah, that makes sense, yeah. Because I, specifically because I remember there was a spelling error. My roommate actually has the physical releases of a couple of the volumes. He didn't get the whole set. But in volume one, there was a spelling error. And I found it on Comixology and I went, oh, I wonder if that's from the Tokyo Pop. So I borrowed his volume and it was there. So I believe they just took the Tokyo Pop translation. Oh, right. They misspelled Joe's name. That's exactly uh, Joe it. Joe Shimura's yeah. name is Shimura. <laughs> yes. Hmm. 
Now, that, that makes sense, especially considering, like, you know, Comixology also has access to Initial D, which obviously a lot of that is the original Tokyo Pop release from what I understand, so. But, yeah, I mean, this could seg into another question on this topic of, you know, Ishinomori. This comes from Trollback9605, and they acknowledge that this might be an elitist offer them, but they feel like Writer as a full franchise has almost overshadowed Ishinomori's legacy as a mangaka for younger fans who might not have seen the adaptations of Cyborg 009 and don't know of that for a long time he was one of Tezuka's assistants. And so I guess they're asking, like, our thoughts on, like, kind of that idea of, like, has Kamen Rider as a franchise, like, overshadowed, like, Ishinomori's contributions to the culture of anime and manga and then his involvement in the series? Or do you think that they exist and by side of Ishinomori's legacy has, you know, tried and still, like, very much uh, acknowledged and respected? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't really have an answer to this. My, my guess would be probably in Japan, he probably has way more of a legacy, obviously, than say, like, over here in North America, where, like, I feel like not a lot of his stuff is available. But I, I don't know, I'm just kind of guessing, honestly. I mean, in, in Japan, and they this is in his hometown, there is an Ishinomori manga museum. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he's pretty well respected over here. But yeah, like even I don't, like I didn't know that he, everyone thinks of um, Osamu Tezuka as like the king of manga, I guess. But I didn't realize he was in the Guinness, uh, that Ishinomori was in the Guinness Book of Records. I definitely think like Tezuka has just, his reputation, you know, has kind of overshadowed a lot of other creators who did as challenging and as like much of an incredible output as him especially in the case of Shinomori who like surpassed him in output and the amount of stories amount of comics he drew but also when you look at the people that are connected to Tezuka it's crazy Mm -hmm. like the people that were around him that then later became legends themselves I think that kind of adds to his legacy. It's not just the stuff that he worked on. It's the fact that he was, you know, Ishinomori was his assistant. And then Nagai was an assistant to Ishinomori. So there is like that lineage of like people influencing each other. The guys that made Doraemon, Fujio, Fujiko? Yeah, those two. And then Gogo 13, Sato. Yeah, Takao Saito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wasn't he an assistant? Like he like turned up on his doorstep. He just like went to Tezuka's house and just was like, give me a job. There's like some crazy story about that. I've never heard it, no. But that's interesting. I think that he just turned up at his house one day. You could probably Google it because I'm probably getting <laughs> it completely wrong. But I'm pretty sure that I saw an interview or maybe it was, do you know, have you ever heard of the TV show Man Ben? Yes. Oh yeah, yes. Ursula's Man Ben. Great. It might have been in that. They did an episode on GoGo 13. I might have to watch that then, yeah. I, I, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I'll, I'll probably have to rewatch it at some point. Yeah, it's pretty good. Really interesting series. Mm-hmm, for sure. But yeah, I think Tezuka just basically gets his legacy from just overall the amount of work that he's done, but also the connections. I don't know if Ishinomori gets the same respect, but the fact that he has a museum kind of leads to the fact that maybe he does in Japan. I mean, Kamen Rider is pretty... The fact that it's still going for like 50 oh, yeah. years. Yeah, and Hirayama did, like, when Hirayama went to see him, Ishinomori was already a celebrity. And, you know, uh, like he mentions, Ishinomori was considered like of higher status than him because even just making those Cyborg 009 movies made him like a huge Japanese icon. Yeah. Right. And I knew, so I, I didn't actually know it was the same person. I didn't know Ishinomori did Cyborg 009. And I actually knew that before I knew Kamen Rider. So that could be true for a lot of other people, maybe. 
I think he's definitely left behind a legacy of work that even though the Ryder franchise, you know, developed and evolved separately from him, I think that Ishinomori's legacy of work still stands tall and he's remembered as a titan in his own right. And I think, especially with the Cyborg 009 franchise, you know, that series, again, as I mentioned before, it continues to get new iterations, new films and stuff like that. And there's, you know, continuing to produce stuff for 009. I'm sure that for... Oh, geez, the 60th in two years, there's going to be something for that, right? So, you know, I, I think that through that series, especially, like, he's beloved worldwide. Because that series especially is, like, it did have reach uh, globally, for sure. Why do you think it doesn't get licensed, like the TV show? Or even the manga, really? Because they've got, I don't know, they've got a new one. But if you are in Japan, like, it's undeniable, the presence of Kamen Rider. Like, it's everywhere. But for some reason, like, you can't get it legally anywhere. You know, that actually brings us to a question we got from Nifty Tev, who actually asked us just that. Like, what are our thoughts on why Toku is hesitant to expand Kamen Rider to the West? There's a fan base for it, clearly. And, you know, Power Rangers successful, Ultraman's getting some representation on Netflix. And so why haven't they just tried to make more of a push to get Kamen Rider out here beyond just a few series? They do bring up in the question that there have been attempts to, like, do their own, like, Western North American adaptations of other writers. Like, I'm pretty sure a long time ago there was, an, like, an English version of... Oh, yeah. yeah. There was. When Power Rangers was going. Master yeah, yeah. Master Rider. And <laughs> I know they they did Dragon Knight, uh, which I guess was an adaptation of Ryuki in particular, which uh, I'm pretty sure one of the actors who was involved with that just at one point was like, hey, guys, you could just torrent this right here. Like, they just didn't care at all. <laughs> yeah, the thing the thing that got me about Dragon Knight was that I think it was airing on the CW. Yeah. And it's like, who on the C, who watching the CW is going to want to watch Kamen Rider? I think it was on like this. I think it was on the kids block. <laughs> well, it's CW for a kid. Yeah, yeah. So it was on the, yeah. That'd be wild block. if like it was just on like the same like primetime block. Like it just, just, just airing a I long mean, way to Supernatural. I more <laughs> like juvenile or Cornish than the Arrowverse shows really. You know, I think it fits in with that. Uh, that's another one I really want to watch at some point. I think I did just download all of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that could have something to do with it. Um, I forget who I saw say this, but um, a theory I've seen is that um, is maybe the same reason why it took a long time for them to do a simulcast of Dragon Ball Super in particular was that I feel like for a lot of Toei's like bigger properties, they really hold out on like, I should say they possibly hold out at first for like maybe a TV deal because they really want their stuff on TV. And then at some point, maybe they just give up and are just like, OK, we'll just we'll just do this, I guess. Like it's not TV, but I guess this is OK. You know, like I wonder maybe that has something to do with it. Like maybe they want Common Rider on TV, but I don't know where you could possibly air Common Rider on American television at this point. You know, so I don't know. I mean, they probably want or they think that in adaptation like Power Rangers, like taking the toku footage but then filming just new scenes with actors is like how they would you know repackage the show for the market but i don't know if like that's necessarily like something that's appealing just broadly these days like power rangers i think endures just because it is like just stood for two decades like brand loyalty yeah 
Yeah, like Power Rangers is not as big as it used to be, but it just kind of continues to exist. There's still because, an audience for it. You know, yeah. it is an established franchise. Yeah, and they're definitely not going to, they would never air a subtitled show on American TV. Even episodes of shows where that have excessive scenes of characters speaking another language with subtitles always like have ratings dips. Because Americans yeah. will not read subtitles. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they could try to make more of an effort to put it on streaming. But even then, like, the viewership probably wouldn't be what they wanted. I, I don't know. I mean, they could do and make an effort. I mean, they've sort of, like, tried to make an effort to put up a lot of their old shows on YouTube or whatever. But, but only a couple episodes have subs and then... Mm-hmm. You know, there are episodes missing for region licensing restrictions and all sorts of stuff. So I was just going to say, I also wonder if maybe because like the fact that Common Rider has a pretty robust like fan sub community behind it, that maybe that hampers the possibility of them trying to do like an official streaming release because they probably realize like some of these shows have been fan sub for literally like a decade or whatever you know so like i wonder if maybe they just don't think it's worth it to try to put like even like most of their shows available for streaming because it's like well who's gonna watch it at this point you know and i know it's a big frustration with the common writer fan base over here because they have a marketing arm for the promotion of the series in north america through team common writer which is a subgroup of bluefin that is you know supposed to bring awareness to the series mostly through promoting merch and stuff but they don't really do anything with the shows themselves they haven't made an effort to make the newest series available legally i mean yeah I, honestly i think you get a lot of eyes if you like just at least started simulcasting like the newest shows you know like i think a lot of people would still respond to that but i don't know mm. yeah i don't know why they don't do it to be honest because if you think about how much stuff is on something like netflix that probably isn't really that popular but they still subtitle it and put it dubbed in every yeah. language yeah and if you look on the Japanese streaming services, then obviously they've basically got everything. Pretty much, yeah. So can't imagine that it would be difficult to just subtitle it and then send it. <laughs> basically send it through the internet and say stream it. I know it's more complicated with the licensing deals, but it doesn't really make any sense, to be honest. Also, Toei as a company, let's be honest, is just weird sometimes. And sometimes I legitimately wonder if they actually know what they're doing when it comes to most stuff they do, honestly. <laughs> they have an old school mindset and are slow to adapt with the times. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like we mentioned, they want their stuff on TV, but they have unrealistic expectations of like how successful their stuff would be on TV and what would be reasonable to charge people to put their shows on TV, which was the whole reason why One Piece was taken off of Tanami five years years ago was because they were charging way more than the ratings justified and why it's coming back is i guess they finally cut a deal to be like okay we just want it on tv so we'll give this to you at a better price than we were before we're not going to charge you the same we were charging for dragon ball super this time yeah yeah for sure that's almost absolutely the the case there like uh i've always heard that like I've talked to people from Discotech and other companies that have licensed anime, and it's always absurd hearing them. Like, I can say this at this point. I was uh, a friend of mine worked for a company that was trying to get into the anime licensing deal or anime licensing business. And the anime they were aiming for was not Ginga Densetsu Weed, but the 2000, there was like a 2000s or remake or sequel series. And they were, they were trying to license that. And they were asking for like $100,000. Mm. And it's like, it's it, you know sometimes with like uh with discotech they've said with with retro shows things considering you know you might pay 
$30,000, for an old uh, a 70s or 80s robot show that people don't remember. But to take this anime about dogs that no one <laughs> knows about in the West and say, oh, this is going to be $100,000. <laughs> and then furthermore, the company, I forget who it was they were dealing with, but was like, yeah. And then also we have final say on everything from the marketing to the pricing. So like if they said you have to release it uh, for $200 uh, a, a box, <laughs> set, they'd yeah. be like, um, yeah. So they have unreason- unreasonable expectations. Look, it's a miracle that we even have the manga available on Manga Planet at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. But even then, that's probably because they found a way to cheap out on the localization probably, costs, yeah. unfortunately. That would also make sense. They want a lot of profit on minimal effort, but also full control. Yeah. Doesn't seem very fair, I don't think. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't know. I like I said, I I hope we get to a point where Common Rider is a bit more available because, like, again, out of the three big Toku franchises, I would like more Common Rider. You know, I would just like more of it in general. Like, I do want to get to whatever's been licensed at some point because I do want to support those, even if I have seen them fan subbed already at this point. I I do want to rewatch them and hopefully give them enough views to maybe justify bringing out more of it. I mean, again, like I totally understand if it's more of a hassle to like try to, like, go back and, like, legally subtitle literally every show that exists or whatever, because I don't know if that's really possible or worth the time and money. Like, even if they went out of their way to start simulcasting new series going forward, like, I think even that would be a step up, honestly, at this point. You'd be surprised how quickly people can sub things when they're getting paid. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it shouldn't take longer than a couple hours once it's translated. Like, it's like, what, three or four times the length of whatever the episode is? I guess. I've done subtitling in the past, not for anything to do with anime or anything, but yeah, typically. Depends on how type you, how quick you type, but I figure even with manga, you've got to pay for the translator, you've got to pay for the printing, you've got to pay for the lettering, you've got to pay editing, proofreading. Yep. But with a TV show, shouldn't it... I mean, I guess it's more expensive because it's a show, but once it's already been made by the Japanese companies, wouldn't you just have to translate it and then you're done? Well, usually what they do is they, I think they usually have the translator actually do the subs because that's just way easier. So they can like check themselves almost and they charge, uh, at least in the West, usually they pay $80 an episode. Oh, okay. I think that's like a flat rate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. $80 an episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, could, yeah. Could, could do better, I would say. Less than minimum wage there. <laughs> uh, a lot better. Yeesh. Yeah. I will say that I hope that Toei does make a push to make Shin Colin Rider, Hideaki oh, please, uh, reimagining of Colin Rider available when the film comes out next oh, year. Oh, man. Because, no, absolutely, that they have to figure out. They, there's an easy way to market that for sure. So that they, that they gotta. They, they've got to do it as like a as like an event or something, because I, I know people who don't watch Toku or, or anything, but... They're just like, like because of their interest in anime, they know about Anno and they just want to see it because it's an Anno movie. And it's like, I think I think that there's there'd be a huge turnout if they got that in theaters. Oh, man. I, yeah. I definitely want to see it. I mean, it. I hope that Shin Ultraman comes out in theater or just comes out legally somehow over here when it comes out later this year. But yeah, but a Shin Kamen Rider for sure. Like, hopefully, hopefully totally make some effort to bring that over. I think that would be a missed opportunity if they didn't. Yeah, I would definitely see that in theaters, honestly. I would love to check that out. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of things that we may be looking forward to, Fate X90Q asked if we're looking for the anime adaptation for OP, and we sort of talked about this before, but I will say, yeah, I am definitely very keen to check it out. Um, I might check out a little bit of it. Um, I mean, now that I know it's like a direct sequel to Double, I might watch Double first before I like watch all of it, just so I have context. And and plus, like, I've gotten a lot of recommendations for Double in particular, and I'm I'm pretty sure that's the one where like one of the writer characters is like a detective or something, or like a private eye. And I, I've always really I've always really liked that aesthetic choice and like how the suit looks and everything like I, I've, I've been interested in watching it for years and I just haven't gotten to it so m- maybe this will be the push I need I don't know um but I think that about does it for questions I mean guess to wrap up to go back to troll about there was a second part to their question that I think would be a good note to end off on and that's just asking what is our favorite manga from Mishinomori common writer <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what about you guys i uh, again I, I could you know i really want to get more into ishinomori's work so i mean I, I would love recommendations and you know just in general based on like what you think your guys's favorite manga from him from him is yeah mine's common writer i think because it's pretty concise you know just kind of i like cyborg 009 as well though mine is cyborg 009 but he he has manga for like like he goes into so many genres that I don't want someone to think that he only does superhero stuff. So even if you're not the biggest of the superheroes, I would definitely say check out some of his stuff. I'm trying to think of what would be. I'm trying to think of a good recommendation because not much is legally available. But oh, what about his Zelda manga? That's pretty available pretty easily. Uh, I w- I would also recommend like Mutant Sabu, which was he has a lot of stuff that has to do with espers, and that's actually something I like is that uh Ishinomori kind of uh in his universe. There's themes that always work the same, like cyborgs tend to always work the same across his works, like Kamen Rider being reconstructed is very similar to the cyborgs in Cyborg 009. And he always incorporates espers or psychics in a similar way. And so uh, I really recommend Mutant Sabu if anyone wants to read that. That's um, basically like a prototype version of the character that would show up in in Azuman, but before it had a superhero aspect. So I think that's really cool. So I'd recommend that, but Cyborg 009 is still probably my favorite. Oh, and also uh, The Way of Ryu, which is a uh, manga that opens up as like a Planet of the Apes type manga, but then turns into like a, uh, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's a Japanese astronaut that crash lands on a planet and it's full of all these weird creatures. And then he sees Mount Fuji and has that Planet of the Apes realization. And then it's about him fighting for survival in this, you know, world where animals have been mutated and people are savages and there's, there's uh, like uh, ape people going around and. Uh, two-headed tigers and stuff so definitely recommend that okay okay sounds pretty cool nice and yeah i mean i guess for me i will have to concur both uh well everyone because i also you know at this point really enjoyed common rider was really blown away especially by the his action sequences but i have a lot of fondness for 009 i want to reread it and yeah so i guess i'm split between like oh well i really enjoyed reading common rider but i remember and have like fond and i have a lot of fondness for 009 just the characters and the, the stories so yeah split but definitely want to check out more stuff and especially john's recommendations mm-hmm, for sure um but yeah now i think that's about it for our questions Yes, and thank you everyone for sending in some really nice questions. And thank you again, John and Phil, for coming on the show and chatting Common Rider Nishinomori with us. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No, seriously. Thank you guys so much. And I guess now we can uh, let our listeners know how they can find you and your stuff. Um, Phil, if you want to go first, if, if there's anything you want to plug in particular. Um, not really. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's just Phil Christie or Phil S. Christie. But uh, to be honest, I don't really post that much. <laughs> uh, by whatever Phil is involved in, especially. There's a lot. There's a lot. By Common Rider. Yeah, by Common Rider. <laughs> yeah, especially by Common For sure. Rider. Definitely support more classy more releases, more Ishidomori releases so we can get more of them. And uh, yeah, as mentioned before, also read Phil's work on Doron Doron. For sure, yeah. Um, and then, John, if there's anything you want to plug. Um, I mean, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mercury Falcon. Um, that's also the name of my YouTube channel, Mercury Falcon, all one word. I cover a lot of Ishinomori. I think most of my video catalog is different Ishinomori works, a lot of Cyborg 009, Cyborg 009 versus Devilman. And uh, I have a documentary on the Toei Fushiki comedy series, one of my favorite videos, uh, even if it's not the most popular. But yeah, and I'm kind of branching out and covering more topics, but I'll definitely have a lot more Ishinomori stuff coming this year anyway mm-hmm. that's that's really cool i definitely still need to like check out some more of your videos i really like what i've watched so far oh i appreciate it but i've loved all your ishinomorus and yeah i really love the fushigi comedy video that was super interesting retrospective an overview of all those series and definitely made me want to check out a lot of them like namurin and stuff and Mm-hmm. Huh, all right but um yeah i think it's uh i think it's time to get on our motorcycles and ride on out of here after a day of fighting the evil shocker organization mm-hmm. let's feel the wind coarsens through our bodies as we head off to ponder the existential questions of our own humanity and then live the five shocker another day arashi だれだ誰だ悪を蹴散らす嵐の男仮面ライダー繊維のマスクまずい行かせエンジン吹かせスピードは絶対サイクロン怒りを込めてぶち当たれショッカーどもぶちのめせライダー Thanks again to Jean and Phil for joining us for our Kamen Rider discussion. It was so great to discuss a work of Ishinomori's finally on the show, the King of Mach himself. And this book truly did show what makes an Ishimori the king in terms of just how jaw-droppingly excellent his comic storytelling is. And how interesting a lot of the things he's forced in his books are. It was great to bounce off of John and Phil and their thoughts and perspectives on the series. And of course, as mentioned before, John on his YouTube channel, Mercury Fallon, does a ton of videos exploring the work of Ishinomori and adaptations of Ishinomori's works in particular. Some of his best works include... His his Cyborg 009 review series where he goes through the 2000s Cyborg 009 TV series and basically breaks it down arc by arc and I've been having a lot of fun watching those videos seeing him like break down the story arcs and how that iteration of the series handled the storylines it chose to do in comparison to the previous anime series and the manga and of course John mentioned 
on the show, like Skullman, and it has an influence on Common Rider, and talked about how interesting that TV series was. And his video on the series is really great in terms of exploring what that adaptation did and all the stuff from Ishinomaru's other works it brought in to really flesh out that story from, you know, the original one shot that Ishinomaru created into this full fledged work that kind of pulls in everything to make really it stand out as part of like a Shotar Ishinomori kind of uh, manga universe, which is really cool. And of course, he mentioned on the show that he was doing this Ixer One retrospective, which came out. It was fantastic exploration of that old OVA series and what made it interesting in terms of the time and place it came out in and why it ended up being so excellent in terms of just this animation storytelling. And also, I mean, in the process of making that video, he made two other videos that just because of the research he did, he just had so much material to say about its director, Toshio Hirano, and exploring his body of work and his career and Space Punch, the predecessor to X or Z that, you know, didn't really get off the ground and still really an interesting kind of prototype project before Ixer ended up being created. And I really think these video essays were great. The Ixer video, of course, is especially fun because I really love what he did with the CRT TV and playing Ixer on the TV. And I like the detail that the footage on the TV actually looked a lot better than he thought. So he had a filter to make it have that old kind of VHS kind of quality to it. So I, I love the little editing choices, the narrative you create about the, his relationship to Exer. And in general, you know, Jean's videos are just excellent. The retrospectives he does, the amount of research he puts into his work and how he extrapolates kind of the interesting parts of the stories and ideas and the creators and their legacies in his videos. So definitely check out his channel. It's full of great videos like those. And if you want more thoughts on Kamen Rider, a lot of people have got you covered. I mean, if you want more thoughts on the Kamen Rider manga, Manga Explaining, of course, did a great, fantastic episode on the series. They didn't focus as much on the story content as we did, but they did a really exhaustive and cool job of like going into the art of the series and what makes it so interesting and astounding. And also, you know, Deb shares some nice highlights about like watching in Hawaii and like their relationship from different perspectives coming into the work and how that shaped their perceptions and what they got out of it. It was really fun to hear, like, Chris, you know, he initially, you know, was going to have his guy, oh, this is an older manga, kitty manga, you know, but then he really came to really love it. And it was like, oh, man, I, I really have no caveats. I really have, like, no pretenses here. Like, oh, no, I, I really, really enjoy this. That's just really fun to hear. So I really enjoy this session. Of course, the show notes would have so go into even more history and more detail. So definitely read those as well for an even broader picture and putting Com Writer in it great, you know, time, place, uh, historical context. For more thoughts on the TV series, Blue Nova has been doing a great series of episodes on the original Common Rider, basically breaking the show down kind of in its different eras, different story arcs from, you know, the original Hongo 13 episodes, then to when it switched to second Common Rider, then when, you know, Hongo came back and both Common Riders were together. So it's been doing a really great job, like exploring like these different eras of Common Rider and how the show evolved during these different phases. And I really, really find them a lot of fun. And Marco's Houses also did a fantastic like overview video of like the history of Common Rider as a franchise, which is great if you want to have like a full picture of like the evolution of Common Rider throughout the decades, basically, of its run and different iterations of it and how each new series kind of built on the last one, the connective tissue between them and its evolution. 
For some criticism of Common Rider, I think you can definitely really appreciate these articles from Anytham by two different authors. One author explored how Common Rider fails its female fan base, fails the women in its series, oftentimes, you know, in its you know, fifth year run. It really has not had a lot of female writers. Female characters are often very uh, perfunctory or they're on the sidelines, like they're just love interests or companions to the male protagonist, or sometimes, unfortunately, they're like kind of literally like objectified or they are put in the crosshairs between two male characters as something that they're fighting over. But it also explores changes in recent series of like more proactive female characters and characters that are able to participate in the show even in non-combative roles in a really significant capacity so it shows that the series has made mistakes in that front but it has been improving over the years. Similarly, there was a great piece about queer subtext and representation in Comrade Air by Narissa Mercer, where it explores that Comrade as a franchise has often had, you know, some really appealing kind of LGBTQ subtext to a lot of character relationships, especially because, you know, they're about a lot of, they're about a lot of the central relationships in the series are between, you know, two very attractive men who like care about each other very, very much. So there's a lot for queer viewers to latch onto, but it's also kind of frustrating because there's the subtext but explicit representation often has a lot of caveats to it like there are actually like some lgbq characters but some of them like a particular like non-binary character is there's like different baggage to that because the non-binary character in zero one naki is like also a robot and you know just associating non-binary with robots feeds into this idea of like oh non-binary that is like a non-human attribute and so like the series has made sort of missteps like that or like when it does have like sympathetic heroic queer characters they often will get killed off or they'll get sidelined so you know the series does also need to improve on that front and uh, this also ends on the note though this article of like, you know, Common Writers is a series that is progressing, like the, it's improving on this point of representation, but obviously it still needs to go the extra mile. But there's still a lot in there that as a queer viewer, there's a lot to latch on to and appreciate and enjoy. So I think there are very fair, even-handed perspectives on some aspects of the Common Writer franchise that could be improved in terms of representation. But still, there's a lot of value for viewers of uh, those groups, even with how it is now. They just want better, which I agree with. For cuts on like the failed attempt by Savant to localize Common Rider as Mass Spider in the 90s as an offshoot of Power Rangers, both Veritas Joe and Toy Galaxy did some great videos that go over like what this show was, why it didn't work, what Fergus even was, why was that a character in this thing. So there were very fun videos that explored like, hey, it's, you know, this is the attempt of it. This is kind of why, again, retrospective really at the time, they should realize it was not going to work out because they were adapting a series that at this point was six years old and they couldn't, they had to borrow footage from multiple different Common Rider series. So it's very obvious that the costume changed <laughs> depending on the scene. So yeah, it's it's an interesting exploration of kind of the, the mess of like an adaptation that attempt of localizing Common Rider in the U.S. and say makes Power Rangers did the superset they was. For more thoughts on like Shotaro Ishinomori and his legacy and body work, Kaiju no Kami did a great video uh, or rather he did a great panel at Anime Detour in 2018 that he's 
posted up as a video on his YouTube channel that goes over his career history. That's very informative. And the Great Berg also did a great video profile of Shintaro Shinomori's history as a mangaka and why his work is so influential and important. And finally, I want to shout out Cartoonist Kayfabe, just exploring Ishinomori's Legend of Zelda manga and talking about how cool the art is, like what makes it really stand out, especially in the context of, you know, being a reader of Nintendo Power back when it was being serialized in there and just seeing this comic and just being kind of blown away by the art and when it stands out against other comics, you know, being run at the time as like a huge comics reader at the time. So yeah, I really, really appreciate him going through that book and just pointing out cool details about the art and Ishinomori's coloring choices in that book, especially since it was like a full color comic. And yeah, I think that these are great selection of videos to check out if you're interested in learning more about Comrider, both the original manga and the TV show, and Ishinomori and his body of work and other works. And those are the shout outs I'm going to leave you with for this episode. And to be sure, there's still a lot more regarding Ishinomori and people discussing critiquing his work that we'll be sure to mention in future episodes for sure as future shout outs but for now i think we'll leave you with all this cool stuff to go check out and head up into the wrap up of our show for sure for sure but thank you everybody for listening to this episode of manga mavericks we hope you really enjoyed it uh i did mention it at the top of the show or at least i I hinted at it but we have actually already recorded another episode covering another shotaro ishinomori manga and I guess another Ishinomori tokusatsu hero manga, I should say, uh, where we covered Himitsu Sentai Go Ranger, which was released by Seven Seas, I think about a year ago at this point. Also another episode uh, with a few special guests that uh, we really had a fun time talking with. Um, So uh, I guess I'll just pull the cat out of the bag. Uh, The bad news is that we had a lot of technical difficulties with that episode, mostly on my end, so it's not too big a deal. Um, Everyone else's audio was fine, but uh, just for reference, that was the last podcast that we recorded before my computer went kaput and I had to go get it repaired. So obviously I had a whole lot of technical issues on my end that I kind of need extra time to kind of like work the kinks out on. So originally we really wanted to have both our Kamen Rider episode and our Go Ranger episode come out back to back, but I don't know if that's going to happen because of all the technical issues we had, or I should say that I had on my end with while recording the episode that I, I kind of need more time to kind of work on. So it might not be out next week. And, you know, because of all the other stuff that like we really want to do and all the other episodes of the podcast, we still kind of need to release on our main feed and everything. That particular episode might take a little bit to come out because we have other stuff that we kind of want to put out first. But worst case scenario, uh, if I have it edited and um, we just don't really have a place on our schedule to, you know, as to when we put it up on our main feed, um, that'll probably go up on our Patreon first at patreon.com slash mavericks at the $2 tier where people can listen to select episodes of the podcast before we put them up on our main feed. I, I go over all that in a little bit. But suffice to say that, yeah, worst case scenario, it'll probably be up on our Patreon first. So uh, if you really want to hear us talk about Go Ranger and you just can't wait to listen to the episode, uh, uh, trust me, it was a very fun conversation. I really want to put it up uh, whenever we can find the space to kind of put it up amongst all of our other podcasts we have to release eventually. But I just wanted to put it out there that that might take a little longer to release than we originally planned for and I really do apologize but I hope people look forward to it nonetheless because it was a really great conversation and I I really can't wait for people to listen to it but uh yes um I don't know what we're doing next week on the show just yet we're still kind of figuring that out but uh you know just just letting you guys know that our go ranger discussion is coming 
eventually. Um, just might not be next week's episode, unfortunately, but it is coming. I promise we'll we'll have it up eventually. But uh, yes, I guess until then, we're going to end the show by letting you guys know where you can find us, uh, starting with my good friend Lum. Where can the people find you? You can find me at Lumriyasha on Twitter at Lumriyasha to write places like Animation Revelation and Annie List and Letterboxd. For others, Lumriyasha, you can find me there by the name. You can also read my reviews on MangaWorks.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews planned to go out. Look forward to more on there. That's also where you can find the other podcasts that I do. Lum Squad, the Yours are focused podcast that I do with a good friend, Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. We just cover the wonderful and wacky world of Mukahashi's classic sci-fi comedy manga, Yours We're having a lot of fun going through Viz's releases of the manga. And we have been having a lot of fun talking about the movies out there on Crunchyroll and on Blu-ray from Discotech. And we are incredibly excited to be talking about the new anime as it's going to come out later this year. There's just so much to talk about regarding the world of Yorosei Astra. We're so excited to discuss it and just gush about the series we love. Uh, and talk about it and we hope that you'll enjoy listening to us talk about it so if you want some great URC outside conversation definitely check us out you can find us on twitter at underscore squad and you can also find us where the manga matters podcast is because we post our episodes in the podcast feed but you also can find us on pretty much any other podcast platform on our own feed apple podcast Spotify, stitcher anchor and on youtube you can just search for us in the channel bar and you'll find us as well and if you like the art I make, the illustrations I do for our podcast, and the animations illustrations I make in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtworks. All right. But as for me, I'm Colta. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts outside of Manga Mavericks that uh, you can find links to over at my personal blog at ColtonCorner.wordpress.com. Uh, over there, I have a page dedicated to basically whatever podcast I'm doing, uh, including, you know, whatever podcast I'm not involved in anymore, or, uh, you know, even all my guest spots I've done over the years on so many other podcasts. You know, like I said, if you want to listen to any of my other podcasts, you know, ongoing or otherwise, you can find all of them there at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, but as for Manga Maverick specifically, you can find every episode over at MangaMavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at Patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks, where at the $2 tier, uh, you will have the opportunity to access select episodes of the podcast before they're up on our main feed. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before we're ready to put it up on the main feed, uh, that's where we'll usually put it up first is on our Patreon at the $2 tier. But that also depends on, like, you know, what we have done at any given point and what our schedules are like and everything. So admittedly, if you want more reliable content, uh, you should sign up for our $5 tier, uh, where we put up a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, right now, our latest bonus podcast is a discussion of Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, both the movie and the manga, where we had special guest on Kate Sanchez from But Why Though, as well as Sam Leach from the One Piece podcast to come on and talk about all sorts of things Jujutsu Kaisen in general. You know, we, we talk about our thoughts on the movie, as well as the manga, and even speculate on how map is going to handle the rest of the Jujutsu Kaisen anime. A lot of really cool stuff. I had a lot of fun talking about the movie and everything, and it's a good discussion. So if you want to hear us just talk about Jujutsu Kaisen in general, uh, you want to go to patreon.com slash manga mavericks and basically listen to all of our other bonus podcasts, which we have like hours and hours of bonus content on there that you can listen to once you sign up. And when you sign up for our Patreon in general, like it's, it's the best way for you guys to 
you know, support us and everything that we're doing. It really helps us keep the lights on. Whatever money we get from our Patreon, we do mainly use it for like podcasting and website hosting. Um, so yeah, if you sign up for a Patreon, once again, at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, we really appreciate your patronage and support and we can't thank you enough. But as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, where we post different excerpts of our podcasts, uh, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Um, do you have any thoughts on uh, Kamen Rider or any of Shatara Ishinomori's other manga? Are you reading anything that you want us to talk about on the show? You know, just email us anything about manga or the podcast. We love getting emails from you guys, and we'll read them on the show. Once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, wherever you can find podcasts. Um, but especially on Apple Podcasts, and even places on like Spotify and everything. Uh, if you leave us a rating and review, it really helps the visibility of our show and helps us get out there to more listeners. Um, but just in general, we also love getting feedback from you guys anywhere we can, whether it's positive or negative, uh, because we want to use that feedback to make the show that much better. But yes, that's going to be about it for this episode. This has been episode 197 of the Manga Mavericks podcast, and we'll see you guys next time for episode 198. Bye, guys. Sayonara! Sayonara!